Your Total Wine & More store is ready to serve you with our always low prices on an incredible 8,000 wines and 2,500 beers. Want it today? Try our same-day delivery or contactless curbside pickup at TotalWine.com. Whether you're grabbing your favorite beer or pouring a glass to enjoy an evening on the deck, Total Wine & More has you covered. Visit any of our 12 stores in Northern Virginia. Your Total Wine & More store is ready to serve you with our always low prices on an incredible 8,000 wines and 2,500 beers. Want it today? Try our same-day delivery or contactless curbside pickup at TotalWine.com. Whether you're grabbing your favorite beer or pouring a glass to enjoy an evening on the deck, Total Wine & More has you covered. Visit any of our 12 stores in Northern Virginia. Welcome to the Indie Film Hustle Podcast, episode number 383. Be strong because things will get better. It may be stormy now, but it never rains forever. Anonymous. Broadcasting from the back alley in Hollywood, it's the Indie Film Hustle Podcast, where we show you how to survive and thrive as an indie filmmaker in the jungles of the film biz. And here's your host, Alex Ferrari. Welcome, welcome to another episode of the Indie Film Hustle Podcast. I am your quarantined and humble host, Alex Ferrari. Today's show is sponsored by Rise of the Film Entrepreneur, how to turn your independent film into a profitable business. It's harder today than ever before for independent filmmakers to make money with their films, from predatory film distributors ripping them off to huckster film aggregators who prey upon them. The odds are stacked against the indie filmmaker. The old distribution model of making money with your film is broken and there needs to be a change. The future of independent filmmaking is the entrepreneurial filmmaker or the film entrepreneur. In Rise of the Film Entrepreneur, I break down how to actually make money with your film projects and show you how to turn your indie film into a profitable business. With case studies examining successes and failures, this book shows you the step-by-step -step method to turn your passion into a profitable career. If you're making a feature film, series, or any other kind of video content, the Film Entrepreneur method will set you up for success. The book is available in paperback, ebook, and of course, audiobook. If you want to order it, just head over to www.filmbizbook.com. That's filmbizbook.com. Now, guys, today I have a very special episode. It is a somewhat sad episode, but it is a special event. I have today on the show film trooper extraordinaire Scott McMahon. Now, for those of you who know who Scott is, Scott runs filmtrooper.com, which was an amazing resource for independent filmmakers and has been running now, I think, for a little bit over six, seven years. And, uh, and Scott and I have become really good friends over the years. Many of you know that I used to have a mastermind with Scott and a handful of other independent film kind of blogs and podcasts as well. And Scott decided to kind of close down Film Trooper and wanted to have me on as his last guest on his podcast. And the conversation we had was so epic that I begged Scott to allow me to publish it on my podcast because the information that we talked about was so, so valuable. I wanted to make sure that everybody in the tribe uh, got to hear it. 
And Scott and I kind of go over what both of us have learned over the course of the last five to seven years running our podcast, the biggest lessons, the biggest takeaways we've taken from all the people that we've interviewed and worked with over the course of the last five to seven years. And we also talk about uh, the elephant in the room, the coronavirus, how it is affecting our industry, how it's going to affect our industry moving forward, some predictions of what might happen, and how you can best prepare yourselves to take advantage of the new way of doing things. And I promise you, like I said last week, things will change and things will never be exactly the way they were before. So uh, this episode is just chock full of knowledge bombs, and it is almost two and a half, over two and a half hours. So not that you guys have much to do right now. You're probably at home quarantined, so sit back, relax. If you want to bust out a notebook or your iPad to take some notes, do it because this is an epic episode. So without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Scott McMahon. Thank you for like joining me on literally the last episode uh, for the podcast for Film Trooper. Uh, it's been I've been dormant for a while anyway, so people are like, "What? I didn't know that podcast was still around." <laughs> <laughs> so those for loyal followers or listeners are, are that are getting this episode, um, at least we can wrap it up. I kind of wanted to really use this opportunity to, to do sort of as as we can a little bit of masterclass, like everything that we've learned. Mm-hmm. running our podcasts and working in the independent film uh, space mm-hmm. and meeting a lot of amazing people um, and other people you're like, what? No. Anyway, the, uh, <laughs> the, the I really just want to, you know, have these takeaways. So you can have like, here's one episode that says, hey, man, this is after all these years doing this stuff. This is what I've learned. And this is how I'm applying, applying the knowledge that I've acquired to the future now mm-hmm. and the future of independent film. And this, I don't know, at the time of this recording, yes, we are basically a month into our uh, COVID-19 uh, shutdown. Uh, mm-hmm. You're in California, I'm in Oregon. And yeah, being a month, we you know we don't know if it's another month, a couple more months, whatever it might yeah. be. Mm-hmm. It's definitely a new world. And everybody is like, first of all, just trying to figure out had just to the basics, just survive, let alone your dream project or any film project, all that kind of stuff, or the current yeah. projects you're working on. <laughs> like, where does that all fit into the play? So I'm hoping to use this this episode as sort of like breaking down the principles of what we've learned. And maybe that's where, no matter what the situation is, the principles still hold true. Mm-hmm. So the biggest question is, I'm going to ask yeah. you, and then I'll sure. answer myself too for my end of things, is... After all these years of running any film hustle, uh, not just the podcast, but like everything about the uh, the empire that you've built, okay, um, what is really kind of like the one takeaway that you've learned after all the learn? I don't know what's the biggest thing you've learned about it all in terms of independent filmmaking. Um, well, there's two questions. So, is it about independent filmmaking, or is it about running indie film hustle? Because there's let's 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 focus on any. Indie film, just filmmaking, because okay. uh, like like running, not everybody has a podcast and things like that. So let's let's focus on like the filmmaker going. Well, okay. What, you, after all, you guys have talked to a ton of different people, interviewed a lot of different people. Um, what is your what is our biggest takeaway from all this experience? I think the biggest takeaway for me, at least, is that the filmmaker mentality or the mindset of the filmmaker, independent filmmaker, 
is really stuck in the 90s and early 2000s in the way things are done. And and not only in the way, you know, obviously the way things are done, meaning the filmmaking process itself has changed dramatically even in the last 10 to 15 years. It's completely different than when, you know, early 2000s to now, how films are made is drastically different. It's more affordable, more technology and so on. But the other parts of the business, uh, meaning how movies are made, how are they exhibited, how are they sent out, how do you put together a project, that is changing so rapidly that I think the biggest thing I've learned is to constantly be adjusting, constantly be pivoting my techniques, my uh, approaches to the filmmaking process, whereas in uh, my last film on the corner of Ego and Desire, which I shot in about four days at the Sundance Film Festival – I couldn't have done that 15 years ago. It would have been a lot more complicated to do something like that. Uh, and it wouldn't, even if 15 years ago, it wouldn't have been at the cost that I was able to do it now, uh, as far as, you know, I, I think we spent about 3000 and change on that film. And that being able to understand where the market's going, understand the tech, understand how to pivot. I think that's the biggest lesson is to not be afraid to change your trajectory, to pivot, to adjust to an ever changing marketplace. And like I was yelling at the top of my lungs for all of last year, guys, something's coming. <laughs> be care- <laughs> Something is coming. We're due. I had no idea it was going to be the pen. You know, I'm not Nostradamus. I had no idea there was going to be a pandemic, but I did say that, look guys, there's going to be a financial uh, crisis of one way, shape or form. We're going to have a downturn and everything that's happening in our industry right now is all in very good, um, in very good economic times. Whereas in, uh, Everything else that we, as far as, um, as good economic times. So as soon as something changes, all those, those weaknesses, all those cracks in the infrastructure that is Hollywood are going to start to show and the water's going to start leaking in the dam and it's going to just break down and the whole dam's going to come crashing down. And I do believe that. Uh, and you, sir, with your first book, uh, The Hollywood Implosion, I, I, I don't think, again, you didn't think there was going to be a pandemic that would do it or huge no. financial crashes that do it. But something was going to happen, and I think that, uh, and we're seeing it now. Even four weeks in, um, you know, there's reports of AMC shutting down. Period. So, and yeah. and there's good. I promise you, there's going to be a few. And before this is all said and done, we're going to lose a studio or two, either through acquisition or just straight up bankruptcy, because they're just so uh, leveraged and so in debt um, and so non diversified. That uh, they're not going to survive in the new uh, the new film world that we have the new economics or ecosystem that um, that we live in today. But I could keep talking forever. But that's just generally the the, the first thing. <laughs> that's the, that's the biggest thing I've learned. Well, that it's I'm gonna I'll I'll do the improv thing. Like yes and <laughs> sure. yes and I will add on to what you were saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, it's interesting because we we met up in person uh, a few months ago prior to all this stuff happening. I was down pre, in Southern corona. California. Pre-corona. I, yes, pre-corona. I stopped by um, the Indie Film Hustle headquarters. Very cool. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, we've known each other for many years. And I remember, you know, we're in your driveway and I was showing you like that graph. Like, yes, hey, yes. We're, 
Yes. Basically, it was this um, this chart that was showing we are probably in the largest economic bubble that's about mm-hmm. to pop. Mm-hmm. And again, we had no idea it was going to be a pandemic that was going to kick it off, but we knew that something was on brewing around the corner. And so you and I both had this look on our faces in the um, in the driveway, going, "Yeah, man, something's happening. Going to happen. I don't know what's going to be, but oh boy, here it comes." And, and then- I, by the way, I showed that graph to everybody, like anyone I would meet on the street. Hey, come here, come here, look at this thing, look at this yeah. thing. And then you see their faces just go, "Oh my god!" And by the way, everyone listening. The, we are not in an economic crisis yet. This is all still spawned from a pandemic. The issues that are in the economy are starting to show, but they're pumping so much money into the system, you know, this funny money that the Fed is throwing in there, that they're still going to, oh, we, we have no, just wait. And I'm not, I don't wish it. I wish it doesn't happen, but we have not seen an economic crisis yet. We're just starting yes. to see it. Right. This is just uh, the the impetus to, you know, set this thing off that it was already due for a correction anyway. But anyway, so moving forward, that that makes sense because we were like, okay, when you're an independent filmmaker and, you know, what is that classic quote from um, Orson Welles? Like he spent 95 percent of his time hustling, chasing money and like five percent of his time making movies. Mm -hmm. So and that's he was just like, that's no way to live. Like this is Orson Welles. And that epic economic uh, paradigm or the business model really hasn't changed in, in a long time because isn't that like the biggest question a lot of independent filmmakers have? It's like, well, how do I get the money for my project? You know, where do I, where do I get the funding to make something happen, right? <laughs> where I think the question needs to be switched is that now how can I get money for my project is how can I create a project for the resources that I have or the resources yeah. that I can get to? So instead of chasing that golden carrot for five years because I need five million to make my epic, I can't make a movie for less than five million, which I had that conversation with myself and other people, unfortunately, uh, throughout my <laughs> career, I finally decided, hey, what can I afford and what kind of story can I tell within that and then humble myself to go down the, to lower budgets, which is smart, is much smarter financially. It's much smarter for longevity in this business and then slowly build up from there where then you can get to the 1 million and the 5 million, but you've got to prove yourself first. Um, and even if you have made a few features, you want to make another movie. I promise you in the, in the coming years, it's going to be a lot harder to find one or $2 million um, investors because no, the one and two million dollar movies aren't making money anymore. Because that's a whole other conversation we can get to it later in regards <laughs> to the distribution world that we're dealing with. But that's, I think, that's how you should switch that conversation in your own head. Yeah, that's a good one. And so, with you know, with my exp- um, experience and all the different people I've interviewed on Film Trooper, you know, I was on, I was on a quest to just find out the goal of like, how does it you know, we have like different paradigms of like the the film world. We have like obviously the studio system. I, I called sort of like the indie film market or like the film market world. So this is like the people that are operating in the uh, Cannes film market world, the American film market world. And then you have about whatever, 95% of everybody else <laughs> working right. in the ultra independent, the hustlers, the mm-hmm. indie, indie film hus- hustler um, community, the film trooper community. I mean, I, I, I was using a term called an Uber independent filmmaker, mm-hmm. which is like you're not you're not playing in that world. Like you can make your movies and you could 
use these different services that keep changing left and right. And, you know, who else knows better this than yourself with <laughs> all the work that you've done on, you know, distribution companies and, and things like that. But having these resources to get your work out there to the world online, you know, we're 95% of us are working in that world. And a few, few of us, a very small percentage actually gets to move up the, the ranks, maybe get into the film market world, get into the studio system. Again, very, very, very few. So from that experience, I was on a quest trying to find out, well, how does like the Uber independent filmmaker who I've chosen not to live in California, I'm up here in Oregon, how do someone like myself who wants to make, uh, you know, storied content or film content make a living um, using these online resources that we have now? And that was sort of the quest of Film Trooper. And the biggest takeaway I got was from, uh, to me, the, the greatest successful independent filmmaker of all time, which George Lucas, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> The guy, you know, made his Star Wars film for the studios, but ever since then, he, you know, he all the money he made, he made all his movies on his own at that at that point. Yes, there was studio, you know, involvement here and there, but he wasn't enslaved by the studio system. And his biggest takeaway, after all his years of experience, he said, you know what? All the money is in the action figures. Mm-hmm. And it's in the lunchboxes, idiots. That's, yeah. That's it. And when you unpack what that means, is just simply saying that the the art that we create, the films, the books, the music, you know, whatever it might be, that that's just like a starting point. But in order to make money, in terms of the money to create a sustainable living, you have to have this all these ancillary res- um, um, materials and sources coming out from that project, which is you talk about in your latest book. The rise of the film film entrepreneur, right? You mean, th- you mean this one, sir? Oh, love that. Oh, hey, you, <laughs> you know what? Watch this. <laughs> yes, and it's also discussed in oh, this yes. book too. In <laughs> 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 my book, but it's true. It's, yeah. it's it comes down to this thing, like okay. So I kind of, I came away with it going, okay. So our films are nothing more than an advertisement, and like we're you know, so what is it that we're selling that has a higher price point, especially if our films you one, you can get them for free online or somebody might just wait till it's a 99 cents rental or you get a streaming deal with, you know, which won't necessarily always match up to your budget per se. But you're like, well, how do I control the the ownership of that property so that I can uh, exploit it more? And that's really what it is. It's like the whole business of um, film, the film business is exploitation license exploitation mm-hmm. and it's in a book by called the biz by mm-hmm. um Schuler and moore who's a, a entertainment lawyer he just says he, just bluntly i mean it's just like cold and you know cut cut and dry the whole business revolves around the exploitation of the license that's it as soon as you wrap your head around that you're like that is the business so how do we as uber independent filmmakers be in the business of exploitation of our own licenses and that's why your book is fantastic because it just lays it out mm-hmm, you know thank you. and i hope that my book adds like a little bit of um uh knowledge bombs here and there to help people you know take away from that so my takeaway from the whole experience of film trooper was okay if our movies are you know if all the money's in the action figures what is the action figure that i'm creating which is why those who have been following me i switched a couple years ago i um, got into real estate and I said, I'm going to use film content, some sort of creative content as my amplification to sell a higher price product, which happens to be a higher price service, which is real estate. So now 
And not only that, but it got me out of the world of, I guess, servicing independent filmmakers. Because mm-hmm. any film hustle, your customer base would be that part of your empire mm-hmm. <laughs> is, part, <laughs> is for the independent filmmaker. Yeah. Um, once I cease really putting um, – uh, once I switched the, my audience and I went from basically independent filmmakers to people that are looking to buy and sell homes or real estate lot – then the whole I had to start from scratch. It's not like I had a huge following from like independent filmmakers who are like, oh, we're going to follow them to like buying and selling houses in Oregon. Like it's like it, it was <laughs> yes, exactly. It's completely starting from scratch. But I was trying to apply the principles of like I get to make a creative creative show, which I have. I have a little show called Around the Neighborhood at AroundTheNeighborhood It's amazing. Show. It's I watch just, I watch every episode, sir. Thanks. Every episode oh, on thanks. Facebook. I always love it. <laughs> <laughs> so I, you know, the, the principles of filmmaking are still there. I still have to come up with a, a subject. I still have to, I actually write scripts cause I'm trying to find nuggets of how to create like mystery enough questions to be answered up front, uh, that or questions proposed up front. And then the, throughout the story, you it's uncovered by the end of it. Um, and then, and then the whole process of, Filming, you know, uh, editing, you know, music, all that kind of stuff. All that stuff is there. It's just now that I'm, I've embraced knowing that this is a free product. This is the free content, but it's, I get to choose how I make it because it's, it's creative enough for me to have that creative outlet. And the byproduct just happens to be selling a higher price service. Mm -hmm. And, um, one of the other takeaways, I don't know if you've really came across this too, Alex, but. You know, a lot of people in the film industry, uh, they they have a production company because mm-hmm. they have the skill sets to mm-hmm. shoot video product, and you know, and they have a production company, and you, a lot of these, and they're really a lot of them really good. And the, but what it is the ba- the basis of that business model is they have to wait for a company to hire an advertisement agency. Mm-hmm. That agency controls who they work with in a production company. So your production company is hoping you have relationships with an ad agency mm-hmm. that's going to give you money to make a production, but you're based off the client's needs. Mm-hmm. So that pays the bills. So for a lot of people out there, you're running your production company is paying your bills, mm-hmm. but you always have this dream of like, I can't wait to make my short film. I'm going to mm-hmm. use this money, all the resources I have, I'm going to make more independent film. So I thought to myself, what if you flip it on its head? Instead of waiting for the ad agency to hire you or hire your production company or a client to hire you, mm-hmm. why don't you find the product that you like and maybe become sort of like a, um, an as, uh, affiliate salesperson for that product, but the content you make for that product, you get to dictate it. You mm-hmm. get to dictate you know, creatively how you want to advertise or sell that product. And that's really what I've just done. All I've done is saying I get to create this like around the man town show mm-hmm. and creatively go into it. But again, the byproduct is that. What have interesting things have you found um, interviewing a lot of different filmmakers and their situation that makes you kind of that maybe little added nuggets that you have in your book that you can expand upon that kind of go like flip things on its head a little bit. So, so filmmakers can start looking at things differently again. Well, the, the book rise of the film entrepreneur is kind of like a, a complete mind shift in how you make films. It, it completely changes the way you read that book and you can't unread it. It's kind of like one of those things when you, when you hear the concept, you're just like, well, I, I can't not 
think about this anymore. Uh, I can't unsee it. Um, one thing I have found, and I've had, and I've had a few conversations. The book's been out now for about four months or so, so like about four months and change. And uh, the one thing I hear from certain filmmakers is that uh, I, I've actually had angry filmmakers um, who are just like, "Well, I'm an artist." And I can't, you know, I'm an artist and I don't, it's hard enough to be a filmmaker, let alone have to think about how to sell a lunchbox or build out a, a, a business to sell vegan products for a vegan movie that I made. Like, this is ridiculous and all of this stuff. And I, I've heard that a handful of times and I've had some debates with certain filmmakers about it. And, I, you know, I want to kind of lay it out something really clearly here. When you have, when you create something that is a different way of looking at at the same problem that's been looked at the same way, um, there's always going to be resistance. There's always going to be someone or somebody that's stuck in their own mindset. They're stuck in their own comfort zone and don't want to do it. That was the car with the buggy. That was the that was a gaslight with the electric, the electric bulb. It was it's constant. Anytime there's a shift, anytime there's a, a big change in mindset, there's always going to be um, people who want to fight against the change, uh, whether that be their own insecurities or whether they just don't want to, they want to hold on to what was, that's the only thing they've ever known. So I've had a little bit of, 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 of pushback from that. And I wanted to lay out three different paths, very simple paths that all filmmakers can walk. Film, uh, film path number one is I'm going to be a director. I'm going to be a director for hire. So I'm going to try to create a demo reel, um, maybe even make a, an independent film really low budget just to kind of get my somebody to see what I've done or before it used to be music videos and commercials. But I'm good. my goal is to play in the studio system, to play in television or in the studio system and basically be an employee. Uh, a very high paid and well paid employee, but an employee nevertheless. And there's nothing wrong with that path. The greatest filmmakers of all time have gone down this path, and that that that's fine. The second path is okay. Well, now I'm directing and I'm working, and maybe I'm doing commercials and music videos. Maybe I've been making maybe some, making some documentaries or docu series or whatever. But I'm still instead of being an employee working for all these companies, I'm going to build a production company, and now you basically become a self-employed. Uh, film director or filmmaker. You're a self-employed filmmaker. So now you're not just an employee anymore. You're creating your own jobs by working directly with clients and or studios. So you could be producing shows, you could be producing commercials, music videos, any kind of video content at all. But now you're in somewhat more control, but still dependent on a client, still dependent on mm -hmm. the whims of a client and or studio down that path. And there is nothing wrong with that path either. If you want to walk that path, walk it. I walked both those paths before I found my path. Then there's the third path. Now, the third path is arguably you still have a production company, let's say, and you're still, you're still making a film. You're still a filmmaker. Um, but I'll go into the post world now. All of a sudden now, instead of, um, instead of just being an editor for hire and then opening up your own post house or freelance editing with your own gear, now you create a post-production company that is selling – services to clients. But again, you're like, you know, I wouldn't, wouldn't mind some of that passive income, some of that 
I, you know, that I'm asleep in money. And then I'll start, <laughs> maybe I'll create a LUT package for color grading. And maybe I'll create some motion graphic templates that I could put up online to sell. And all of a sudden, that company starts creating and generating uh, other revenue streams other than its key point, which is post-production, whether those be editing, color grading, whatever, uh, you know, dollars for hours, basically. You're still, mm-hmm. you know, that's what's paying the bills, but you're starting to build out these other revenue streams. Maybe you're shooting some stock footage, maybe you're shooting VFX plates, all these things that you're putting out into the world and selling it on a passive income standpoint, meaning you put it up on a platform and, and or sell it through your website and people are buying this from you 24 hours a day, seven days a week without you having to put any more hours other than what you originally created in that in, in, in creation of the product itself. Sooner or later, if you're doing your job right, and you want to get out of that kind of that nine to five rat race of working for a client, then this business has to grow uh, and these revenue streams have to grow enough to overtake that revenue stream. And once that happens, you're free. You're free to do whatever you want. You're free to create whatever you want within the realm of your reality meaning within the realm of your financial reality, of within your resources, within your connections. That is what I am selling, and that is what I am preaching and teaching in Rise of the Film Entrepreneur, is to create a business that pays you while you sleep using the creative uh, product that you are making, which is an independent film, a series, a docu-series, um, web content, whatever that is, it's all created within the film entrepreneurial method. That's what I found myself to be happy with. I know a lot of filmmakers are like, well, I want to work with the best of the best in the world. I want to work with Deacons. And I'm like, that's great, dude. But there's like 30 guys who do that. You know, he's mm-hmm. only made 60 movies or whatever he's made. You know, there's th- that's a very small doorway to try to get into. I'm not saying it's impossible, but there's still let's say, a lot of other, you know, filmmakers you can work with, with a cinematographer, director, writer, whatever. And if that's the path you want to walk, then go for it. Like I said, some of the greatest filmmakers in history have walked that path. But every great filmmaker that has walked the path in the studio system understands the business, understands what they're doing. Yes, some of them are our tours. Uh, you know, a tours like uh, Chris Nolan, David Fincher, those kind of guys, but they all understand the business of it. They're not just creating art for the sake of creating art. They understand their market. They understand their audience. They understand what they're trying to do. They're just playing in a much, much bigger sandbox. But even those guys have to work within the rules of the sandbox. There's only one filmmaker on the planet who could have brought Avatar to life, and that was James Cameron. Nobody, mm-hmm. They weren't giving Spielberg half a billion dollars to go do what he was going to go do. He was the only filmmaker to do that. You see, it's just very small amounts of people at that level. And that's at any industry, any business whatsoever, whether it be music, whether it be writing, whether it be whatever, there's only a handful at the very top. And my thing is, like you were saying earlier, there's the studio system, there's the markets, and then there's the 95% of us. I'm trying mm-hmm. to help the 95%. The other people the, the other people who are the 5% that want to make those kind of films, my God, go for it. You can actually still use some of the techniques in the film entrepreneurial method in your path without question. But if you're smart 
in my opinion, and the way I feel that the business is moving forward, because I feel that those two systems, that those two paths that we talked about earlier, I feel that that whole infrastructure is starting to shake and starting to crumble. And we're seeing it right now. And in six months, you're going to see it even more. Where if you want to survive as a filmmaker and have a fighting chance without the lottery ticket of getting into the studio system or getting into that system by playing by those rules and so on, creating something that you own, you create, you control, allows you to do whatever you want. And that freedom is, I think, the biggest thing I'm trying to sell uh, with this book and with this entire concept is the freedom to do whatever you want, whenever you want. And it ha- I'm the perfect example of it because I walked all three of those paths. I started off as a director going after, director for hire and an editor for hire. Then I opened a production company, produced commercials, <laughs> produced series, did all my post-production for all that stuff. Then I, while that was still going on, I started creating Indie Film Hustle. I started creating other revenue streams to the point where that other stuff took over the revenue stream that I was doing through post-production. And I just shut down my post-production and my directing, my production company for outside uh, business. Unless it's something I want to do or it's a partner I want to work with, but I don't have to do that anymore. And I became financially free by creating myself, not rich, financially free. And that's a very, <laughs> very big distinction. I am not rich by any stretch of the imagination. I'm still hustling every day. I still got to come out and work at my business every day, but I choose to do it. If I have to take a week or two off, the business still makes money. And that's what I want filmmakers to be able to do with their films. And in the book, I had to lay out so many case studies about filmmakers who are doing this. Is it a long-term play? Absolutely. Is it going to take a lot of work? Absolutely. Is it completely the opposite of everything they ever taught you in film school? Yes. And that's why a lot of filmmakers are upset about it. A lot of filmmakers get angry about it. Like, I just, it's hard enough making a movie. I can't think about all this business stuff. Mm -hmm. Then don't. Then don't walk the other two paths and see how it works out for you. If it works out for you, great. If it doesn't and you're 10 years in and you're still trying to make that thing go and you're working at Taco Bell, um, as a side hustle to, to, to keep chasing that dream, do it. If that's something that you want to do, go for it. But I've given another option that filmmakers have not really been thinking about on a grand scale. And that's why I'm trying to change the mentality of how films are made. But I wanted to kind of lay out those three distinct paths because it's been a lot of confusion and not confusion, but a lot of, you know, I get a lot of pushback here and there from filmmakers. And I just want to clarify that. And I think that, um, hopefully will help uh, kind of clarify the whole situation. What do you think? No, I like it. I like how you applied uh, aspects of the rich dad, poor dad model of employed, self-employed, business owner, and investor yes. into the three scenarios as well as uh, Pat Flynn's um, a whole um, – Passive income um, thing, yeah. Passive Smart income mm-hmm. model that he's put out there to kind of get people thinking. Uh, so it's great to see it all wrapped up together. But I think too like uh, what you mentioned about the angry filmmaker, it's true. When I brought up uh, the scenario, which is like, hey, guess what? Our films are nothing more than an advertisement for something more expensive. That rubbed a lot of filmmakers the wrong way right. because they don't want to see – that they're just like slaves to some sort of, you know, commerce or, you know, they, they see their, their art form as a, you know, something higher. So I, I said, well, if you're not comfortable with that analogy, just use this analogy. If you're an artist, you're listening to this and you're still not comfortable the way what we're talking about, then switch it, you know, turn on its head and come to grips to say that your film is an amplifier. 
It's an amplifier for something bigger. What is that bigger thing? What is that bigger message? And then if that message, can you monetize that message at a higher price point than your initial film? So, you know, again, it's, it's basically the same thing, but it's what you're comfortable with in terms of how to come to grips with it. Is it an amplifier or is it an advertisement or are they both the same and how do you work with that? So, yeah. So with that said, I, um, I want to talk about like just some principles of filmmaking that seem to hold true no matter what is going on in the world mm-hmm. in terms of uh, what I've you know, come to grips with is if we're talking about a narrative, both either feature like a, a feature or short film or even a documentary, the, the narrative, the, it's the aspect of storytelling is still – that's it. That's at the core of everything is storytelling. I worked in the game industry. I worked for Sony PlayStation mm-hmm. for over, you know, a decade. And I discovered that in the world of video games, gameplay is king. That is at the core of everything, which is why it doesn't matter if you spent all this money, have the best looking graphics on like the, the latest platform in the video game world, a little game that has, you know, like uh, Minecraft that's using 8-bit graphics, mm-hmm. but the gameplay is addictive and super fun, mm-hmm. people will gravitate towards that. The same applies for the world of filmmaking. It doesn't matter how gorgeous your lighting is and all that kind of stuff and what cameras you use. If the story is just uh, dry, the, the performances are dry, or your documentary subject is just dry, boring, um, it's not going to engage an audience. But you can have like the worst shot stuff with the sound pretty good, but if the story is just compelling enough, you'll stick with it. You'll you'll put up with all the other garbage just because the story is intriguing enough. So those are the the two the main things that I came away with is like no matter what happens, that in itself is always going to be the 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 tried and true principle. Mm-hmm. Do you know? Do you do you agree or do you see other other things that I might be missing in terms of principles of just filmmaking? No matter what's happening in the world. Um, well, before I get to that, I wanted to piggyback something on the last thing we said really sure. quickly. Um, you know, I like the amplifier and the and the mar- you know you're just trying to be nice. Yeah. You're such a nice guy. Um, <laughs> I swear to God, you're like the nicest person I know, Scott. Um, uh, I'm a little bit more hard edged, so I, I you know <laughs> uh, th- this is this is the frank raw reality of this. If you have a problem with the concept of money and making money with your Im- with your movies uh, or with your video content, understand that you're a hobbyist. You're not a professional. There is a huge difference between a hobbyist and a professional. I see two guitars sitting behind you, uh, Scott. I could pick <laughs> up one of those guitars and start to learn how to play a guitar. I can play the guitar. I could sit there for six months and play the guitar and learn how to play the guitar in my house. Then maybe if I'm even somewhat okay, go out to some coffee shops uh, post Corona, go out to some coffee shops and, and maybe, maybe work for, maybe do a, for a couple free gigs. And then maybe a little bit later, I can maybe get a gig or two here on the weekends. Is that going to support me and my family? No. It will not until it grows into something much, much larger. So during that process, I am a hobbyist. Now, if I can go and sell out Madison Square Garden with my guitar, I am a professional. If I can go sell 10,000 streams and make a buck a stream for a month, I'm a professional. I am covering, you see what I'm saying? 
That is the difference mm-hmm. between a filmmaker who's like, I don't want to talk about the money. Well, if you don't want to talk about money, you're a hobbyist, period. You're an artist. That's fine. And there's nothing wrong with it. If you want to be an artist, be an artist. Create content and create film and create stories that are important and impactful to you. But understand that if you cannot sell it, if you cannot monetize it, you will not survive in this industry at the level that you want to be. Meaning that if you can make your movies for five 500 bucks a pop, my friend, do whatever you want. But if you need $100,000, $50,000, to make your movies, you have a fiduciary responsibility to (laughs) respect the money and understand how you're going to recoup that money. Unless it's a gift, you got to recoup it because unfortunately, unlike that guitar that's sitting behind Scott right now, I don't know how much that guitar costs, but I know it doesn't cost $5,000. I know it doesn't cost $10,000. It's a very affordable art form to play where Playing as a filmmaker is an extremely, if not one of the most extremely expensive art forms and complicated art forms on the planet. So understand those distinctions and that will hopefully help clarify your position. I'm sorry, I had to go on that tangent. I thought it was very important to say that. Uh, That was great. I thought that was great. (laughs) And then we could piggyback to the other one, which is just principles of filmmaking. Now Mm -hmm. that everybody's going to go, okay. They get, hopefully people are in this situation go, okay, where do I fit in this camp or where do I want to go? Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're lay, you know, Scott and Alex are laying down some things here. So now mm-hmm. moving forward, you know, now, the, 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 now there's, we're moving into the part of inspiration of like, mm-hmm. what can you do now? Now that we kind of laid out like, okay, mm-hmm. here's the reality of the world that's changing. You pick what lane you want to be in, mm-hmm. go for it, but just be aware that the other lanes exist. So it's one of those things like now the inspiration, what do, what do filmmakers do now moving forward? And we'll start with the principles. I just, I brought up the, just a simple principle. It's like, it doesn't matter. The story is still King. Story is and, always King. Yeah. Story is always King. There's no question about it. You look at paranormal activity, you look at Blair Witch, you look at some of these low budget films that, um, that don't look particularly well, but the story is intriguing enough to, to the core audience that they're going after that it makes sense. So story is number one. I don't care about the Alexa. I don't care about the red. I don't care about cook lenses or whatever lens you're going to do or whatever cool little drone or gimbal or what. No one cares. No one cares about the gear. You've got to have, look, my iPhone shoots well enough as Sean Baker proved with like four versions, five versions back with uh, mm-hmm. um, Tangerine, he shot an, his entire movie on an iPhone. And it, and he was a professional. He understood what he was doing with that camera. It doesn't matter about the technology anymore. The, the image is going to be good enough. If, if you're remotely competent, you're going to be able to get a good image. It's about story first and foremost. Second principle is understanding your audience. You have to understand who you're making this movie for. If you're making a generalized drama, then I wish you the best of luck unless you have some major money behind you. So focusing on the audience and who you're going to go after with this audience, that's going to be really key because if you don't have someone who's going to want to see this film, then you have no chance of making your money back. And if you're trying to make a broad movie and you're going to try to independently self-distribute and all that stuff, you are doomed. It's going to take even, I've seen some movies, I've seen some shows that are so good. 
I mean, you talk about cream rising to the top. It's mm-hmm. so good, but there is so much noise in today's streaming world. There's so much content to be be uh, consumed that even if your stuff is the best of the best, it still might get lost and have to be found somewhere else later in life. But you're not by that time. It's not going to mean anything. And I know a lot of people are like, well, it's really that good. Someone's going to notice. Maybe, mm. yeah. maybe, and that was the case. I, I always argued that cream will rise to the top, and I, you know what? They, it very might well be. But you might submit maybe the greatest films. Of you know of, of the great your great film is submitted to Sundance, South by Tribeca, Cannes, and all and like five or six of the other big ones, and none of them get the genius. None of them get it. And I promise you, Sundance has gotten it wrong many, many times. South by has gotten it wrong <laughs> many, many times. Um, and these films that got rejected from those places. Look, I mean, Chris Nolan's first movie, The Following was rejected not only from Sundance, but this, but by Slamdance the first time. Then he waited a whole year and submitted it again, and he finally got in. Chris Nolan, you know, like, they don't, it, they're not the Nostradamus of, of filmmaking by any stretch. So if you don't understand your audience and how you're going to sell this thing, how you're going to get eyeballs on your product, then you're not going to make it. You're not going to make it. And the, and the way this world is changing so dramatically, where before theatrical, was the that was the bulk of the money was originally back in the days that's the only place you could you could exhibit your film uh and and uh and generate revenue from it then vhs came in then home video came in then dvd came in then this uh, cable don't forget cable was in there somewhere as well tv deals all that stuff but then the streaming thing showed up and then there was tvod and then there's svod and now there's avod and there's so many different ways to generate revenue but that number that money just keeps dropping lower and lower and lower and the same thing that happened in the music industry is happening in our industry where music is essentially worthless uh on a on a price point not the the artistic aspect of it mm-hmm. but the the model the way it's set up now uh artist uh musicians don't can't make money with their music anymore they have to sell uh, they have to do tours. They have to sell engagements. They have to sell, um, you know, photo ops and T-shirts and hats and get sponsorship deals to survive. To survive, and that's where we're going with, in, in especially in the indie film space and the filmmaking space. So those are, the, I think, the two big principles: story and understanding who your audience is and how you're going to get that movie to that audience. I like it. I want to. Do the again the improv yes and, and. because I think that that's a good point about audience not just okay I'm gonna take a deeper level we're gonna go deeper level unpack it even more in terms of audience uh, knowing who your audience is not just for your film to the eventual audience but made and getting it successful all the way along the line knowing who your audience who you're talking to is and this is really just a basic business principle mm-hmm. and and communicating principle so um you know you and i have had opportunities to kind of dabble into the opportunity of like pitching ideas or getting a project mm-hmm. in place that looked like it was going to go <laughs> big like it was going to go studio <laughs> yes. i had an experience knowing my audience i had uh going all the way to uh, pitching a movie to lauren spender who is tarantino's producing partner you know i made it all the way through all the the gatekeepers, my script and the project, everything like that got all the way through. So I had a face-to-face meeting with Lauren Spender. The problem was you have to know your audience. Even though I got that far, meaning my audience is Lauren Spender. 
And I had a kind of raunchy American comedy that was in play, and he doesn't make raunchy American comedies. Right. I was selling my shoe design to a hat maker. This was not going to work. Right. Not only that, but I made the fatal flaw, too, of like talking about my production experience at Sony, PlayStation, and things. Just to say, my competence level. And the reality is, when you get to these pitch meetings, remember a story is king? They don't care. They didn't care. And when you ever go, um, our friend uh, Stephanie Palmer from Good in a Room, mm-hmm. um, you know, she's transitioned from she's helping left. like screenwriters. She's she's up here in Portland. Mm-hmm. So 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 she is out there um, helping business owners and taking the, the next step. But she was running for many years at the American Film Market. They had a, uh, the pitch uh, conference. Mm-hmm. So it was a very popular conference. And then Pilar Alessandra had taken mm-hmm. over since Stephanie, st- you know, stepped down. You know, there's um, – uh, I forget the producer's name from um, D- Dallas Buyers Club. He's uh, oh. His brother is Cassie and was from um, uh, The Princess Bride and all these great mm-hmm. movies in the mm-hmm. 80s and 90s. Anyway, he's one of the main producers is, uh, for a long time and another producer. And you get to see in real time in this conference uh, people pitching their story ideas to a known, proven producer. Mm-hmm. And you'll see – cringeworthy these people that are pitching bust their heart they have the the courage to be exposed to everybody Mm -hmm. and pitching their idea for real um you'll see the fatal flaw that i had made and other people made because they will go into here's what the poster looks like and all this Mm -hmm. kind of stuff and you realize that's knowing your audience the producer at that very moment does not want to know that you're going to be that involved with like the art department and all this kind of stuff. They just want to know, do you have a interesting story that I can champion that we can move forward to the next step? Your, your goal is not to get the damn thing made right there. Your goal is just like, can you hook them with an interesting story? So the guy who wins the, that guy with like the, uh, the few times I've been there, the, the ones that win the pitch conference is the one that has stripped down. They don't talk about their filmmaking experience. They don't talk about anything. They just go, Here's the story. They tell the story. It's if it's interesting, intriguing enough, they always win. Mm-hmm. So again, knowing who your audience, even at the micro level, before you get things made, is very important. On top of that, one of the one of the great takeaways I learned uh, after all the years running um, Film Trooper in the podcast was this episode I did it where scientists, you know, scientists, a lot of them don't believe in luck. They believe in high probability or low probability. So you were talking about somebody makes an amazing movie or docu series. It's just really well done. So they've helped their chances because they've increased their probability um, of getting it discovered or moving to the next level because they made something phenomenal. But they have to put it in play with all the right pieces to increase their probability of getting mm-hmm. picked up or mm-hmm. getting it sold or making it the next level. If they don't, then that probability goes probability goes down. So when you look at luck in the industry, it's one of those things like if scientists don't believe in luck, but they believe in probability, you got to work every little angle you can to either increase your probability mm-hmm. or you're going to decrease it. So that's like like pragmatic things that go, oh, okay, that's great. So now we're talking about, I want to kind of dive in a little bit about case studies, you know, because mm-hmm. you have them in your book, I have them in my book. And some of the stuff that the case studies are important because I think they they leave a lasting impression because we're going to tell a story. Now you and I get to share stories about other people making it. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I'll start with 
a mine meaning that I made a we're talking about low budget. So I made a, a feature film called The Cube where I made for like about 500 bucks without a crew. Now it was like, what? Without a crew? All it was is like you set up a camera, you set up all the gear, you light the space. I learned this term from um, the the Half Nelson mm-hmm. uh, cinematographer who got an Oscar nod for a nomination, I think, for his work in Half Nelson. And all he talked about, he said it was so low budget that they were like, we just had to light the space and let Ryan Gosling roam around. And I just had to, you know, capture it as opposed to film, like lighting each shot. So I was like, okay, in the world of no crew, you light the space, you set up a camera, there's not a lot of hand, you know, motion, the camera, and you hit record, you jump in, you hope things are in focus and you go. And so it was doable. But the main takeaway from that is that my film wasn't very good. <laughs> like I'm proud of it, but like I look at it, like my acting was really rough at the beginning because as an actor, I'm thinking about everything. I'm on camera going, oh my God, the microphone's too far away. I got to project. I'm not being true. Like it, it was just terrible. Like I got through it, but I'm proud of it because it still has a story that's a beginning, middle and end. I was able to sell it online. I kept my budget so low because I knew here's the thing that people need to know. Um, for a while there, my wife worked at a company that actually saw the real numbers of what films were making in the VOD space or the digital download space. So you, and I was appalled films that had no stars, no major distribution backing were maybe making $3,000 online at the and time. And that was, that was back in the day. And that was a success story. Yes. And then when I did the analysis of films that had, you know, d- name distribution and some name star or somebody you kind of knew, maybe they were making 25000 What I took away from that was like, holy cow. Like this means that these budgets for these movies were not $3,000. They were not 25000 They were a lot more and they're not making any money. Mm-hmm. It forced me to make a feature film for $500. Mm-hmm. Then – the exploration of selling that online was um, using all these different platforms and realizing that I eventually made my money back a little bit more so I can say I'm a successful filmmaker because sure. I made a profit on my film. But running Film Trooper was the exploration of like all the things I was trying to do and meeting people like, well, what's the next step? Um, I found out that I made more money selling my book than I did in my movie. <laughs> Shocking. So I'm just saying – yeah, so I'm just saying, like, they put that in perspective. But we're talking about the the cream rises to the, to the top. Just now, just like a few days ago, one of the one of the great stories that um, that a case study we can look at is the director David F. Sandberg, mm-hmm. who's I think he's from Sweden. I think um, up in the Nordic world, he made the movie the sh- that short film called Lights yeah. Out. Yeah, it got picked up, made a feature film called Lights Out. Because the um, oh gosh, um, the great um, the guy who made Saw and the Conjuring movies, oh um, Aquaman, uh, Lynn, Justin Lynn, yeah, no, no, not Justin Lynn. No, that he did um, the the Fast and Furious movies prior yeah, but, to that. We're but, talking, but Justin Australian. Lynn? Oh, oh, another oh, yeah. Asian guy. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Alex, another Asian guy. <laughs> that, let, you know what? We're going to take a quick pause. <laughs> uh, <laughs> go gonna look at, wait, I'm going to look this up. Go for it. I can't believe it's, it, I'm running. But he, he, um, yeah, he's Australian, but he's Asian, but he's from Australia. Um, 
what like my I my my glasses on the uh, oh James Wan James Wan thank you so not just James, James Wan Got okay it. James Wan is amazing if you yeah. look at his films I'm a huge fan that I can't remember his name but anyway the uh, <laughs> but okay so he champions David F Sandberg's um, mm-hmm. movie Lights Out becomes and our buddy Jason Buff from mm-hmm. Indie Film. Uh, Academy had mm-hmm. a, a really great long interview with him on his podcast. Mm-hmm. He got him at the at the right when he was in the About middle of making the lights out, you know, feature film. So you have to understand, and it it was a really first of all his short film was fantastic, lights, and he had a YouTube following because he was just sharing his filmmaking experiences. Mm-hmm. But he made a very solid two minute, enjoyable, creepy, scary horror film, Lights Out. But with that said, it's a lottery ticket he got. He got yes. a lot. Of, he he won a lottery but ticket. He did because he won a film festival. And but the but the, what I'm saying is he he did the first step was make something good. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about directing. Shows his shops in the most uh, economic way possible. A two minute horror film mm-hmm. that gets picked that gets the notice and gets the next step meetings. You know. Where he gets, you know, the 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 backing feature. So they put him on a feature. You know what? From that feature, he gets Annabelle Creation, and he delivers on Annabelle Creation. You know, because if you're a fan of those series, it just works. But then he gets Shazam. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he makes Shazam. Well, this is a great story because he, if you want to take that first tract of becoming a director, he was making quality content in a short form translated to a long form, you know, that did well enough. He understood the economics of it. Um, but during this uh, coronavirus shutdown, he made he just made another film called Shadowed. And if you haven't seen it, again, it's just, it's brand new. A couple, like a week out, a week ago it came out. And um, it's fantastic. It's two minutes long. He's working with his, um, I think, I don't know if it's his actress or his wife or his girlfriend mm-hmm, that they're mm-hmm. together. But he does this whole behind the scenes and you get to see his vulnerability where he's like having the same struggles of, of all of us filmmakers. But what he's doing, it's like he's still delivering. Even at, he went went full circle. He did a short two-minute film, got three features that did well. He does this short two-minute film and he's still struggling at the two-minute film. But that's a great story if you look at it. Look up David F. Sandberg. Mm-hmm. Look at his trajectory from Lights Out to his feature films to his latest short film in the coronavirus called Shadowed. Yes, a lottery ticket. But for people that want to see if they're a good director, I ha- this is my little thing. Like, you know, if you really want to see if you're a good director, go ahead. Uh, and also, if you're a screenwriter, if you're a screenwriter, um, go ahead and adapt a famous short story mm-hmm. that is in the public domain. Something that exists already, uh, or, or Stephen, or Stephen, Stephen King will give it to you for a buck. He give you a there license. You he gives you any of his short stories for a buck, for all filmmakers to make. So that's something. If you don't know about that, you can get any short story that Stephen King still has the rights to. He will license it to you for a buck. You can't make any money on it, but it's a great showpiece. And Frank Darabont did that, and a bunch of other filmmakers have done that over the years. So yeah, go for that. That's another area. Okay, so there you go. So there's existing so as a writer you have to see how well your story chops are can you translate an already existing uh entity that is proven mm-hmm. then to test your directing chops you direct that you can you direct a edgar allen 
Poe short story. And if you can't direct it, then you know you can't blame the story because mm-hmm. <laughs> it's right. proven. Uh-huh. This really will test you to see whether or not you're a good storyteller. If you have story sense, if you're a good director, if you're able to do that, that'll give you the confidence to move forward with your own stuff. So those are like case studies of how to, you know, take that first path you were talking about, working towards a director for hire. Are you even that good? Because let's be honest, we see a lot of independent filmmakers come through and they do make a lot of, I'm a lot of filmmakers like, wow, they make a lot of films. And it's like, but then at the end of the day, you're like, man, they're not that good, but they still make them. So you're not going to get hired as a director or hire, but you know, I, if I may piggyback on that as well, uh, that example is great. It's a great example. I know his work. Um, but that, but David's, um, David's opportunity was presented because he won a lottery ticket in the sense that James Wan saw it and championed mm-hmm. him. There are probably 10,000 David Sandberg, uh, Sandberg, Sandberg, David Sandberg, Sandberg uh, David F. Sandberg. Yeah. yeah, David Sandberg's out in the world, if not more, that are quality filmmakers. And if given the opportunity to play in that sandbox, they'll kill it um, without question. But he was at the right place at the right time with the right product. That's a lottery ticket. And Robert Rodriguez was that way. Kevin Smith, basically every filmmaker from the early 90s um, were in that in that camp where they made something at the right time because a lot of those films, if they were released today, El Mariachi wouldn't even be looked at today. Clerks wouldn't even be looked at today um, in today's world. So he was at the right place, right time with the right product. What I'm always talking about now with the film entrepreneur method is to – Hedge those, hedge your bet a little bit. What help that probability a little bit more? Maybe by building an audience online. Maybe by getting attention from a large group of people where you have an audience who's really loving. You may make ten or fifteen shorts like that, where now you have two, three hundred thousand people following you, and then all of a sudden that noise attracts certain people to you, as opposed to you throwing out that line. Uh, mm-hmm. That one line to catch a fish where, where you're creating a full net where you can hopefully draw some, and, and leaving bait for someone to come in towards you. It's happened to me in many ways uh, by what I've done with uh, with Indie Film Hustle and my other companies. Um, and and I think that's another plan. Both the same, both the same uh, path, just looking at it a little bit differently. So just because it's really good doesn't mean – that James Wan's going to look at it doesn't mean that J.J. Abrams is going to go, "Hey, kid, you can come and direct with me," or, or um, what's his name from uh, direct um, District Nine? Uh, if it wasn't for mm-hmm. Peter Jackson, do we do we know who he is? Neil Blomkamp. Neil Blomkamp. And I'm not taking anything away from his talent. I'm a huge fan of Neil Blomkamp, and I love his films that he's made. But if that movie comes out ten years later, five years later. Does anyone care? Because he was at a certain point with visual effects where it could make a little noise. You remember that movie, um, that short film, 405? Yeah. You remember those guys? Those guys made this little short film back in the day when visual effects were just coming out. And he, they took the whole town by storm with this, this little short film about a a, a 747 landing on the 405. Um, and it was a great, it's a great short. Um, Mm -hmm. but that today, it's just a cool YouTube video. It, no one would really care. But back then, it was right place, right time, right situation. So you, you always have to hedge yourself a little bit. Go ahead. 
Yeah, no, that's a great point because you and I know there's so many stories you see in the industry, whereas right time, right time, right place, they have a lot of heat in the industry. Like they get a lot of attention. They might even get an opportunity to make a feature film, studio backed, mm-hmm. everything. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you know what? They make one and you never hear from them again. Correct. Happens all the time. Like no, there's there's a lot of case studies, a lot of stories that I go, what happened to that guy? That or like you'll hear stories like, um, you know, like yeah, these guys made this amazing visual effects short, and now they're in development. But then their development hell, they never gets. They had they had office space on the studio. Sure, nothing happens. No, nothing and, happens. but that's the way so this town again. eats. This town eats people like that up. Ta- this town eats talent up. It's insane. So. If we break it down back to principles again, if you are always a a director, filmmaker, but you're really honing your craft all the time, uh, making solid, you know, stories in a film content world, then no matter what happens from there, you still have your your core talent in place. Mm -hmm. I just, you know, I don't know what happened to these other, you know, these all these filmmakers that had this, you know, the golden ticket in their hand, and they never moved forward with it. The great thing about at least David Sandberg is that he's capitalized. Again, there's a few people like, can you capitalize on the opportunities that are in front of you, and are you ready for them? You know, it's like that whole ten year overnight success, which takes ten years to get. You know, that ten years of working towards, are you really, you know, honed in on your craft that way? The problem is, I think, with a lot of these guys that do get the opportunities and do get these like magical stories, uh, and there was a lot of film directors from the '90s that that well, you know had this meteoric rise, and then they just fizzle out or they're gone, and that, and that was the end of it. I mean, um, Kevin Smith was that basically at, at the beginning. Uh, he did Clerks, then he had a big studio movie called Mole Rats that died a miserable death, and mm-hmm. he was pretty much gone. He he was he, they just wrote him off, and then he he went to Miramax and got a hundred and fifty thousand dollars from them to go make Chasing Amy, and that movie brought him back because it was that good. It's arguably still probably one of his best movies ever, um, in my opinion. And but that was exactly what happens. And I feel that when you when you're only focused on that employee standpoint. Which, by the way, I want to make it very clear. If Kevin Feige wants to call me about a Marvel movie, I will take the meeting. Um, I'm not against that at all. I think that would I would love to play in that sh- in that sandbox. But while you're chasing that dream, I'm in the camp of building something that can support you, building something that can support your dream. I was able to continue my directing. Uh, chasing my directing dream and being a filmmaker because I opened up a post-production company because I was a post a freelance post-production uh, editor and then colorist and post-supervisor and so on. I would That was my foundation. It's creating that foundation. And I would much rather, instead of you know having a taco truck as my foundation of revenue, creating something within the industry where I can learn and grow to build that foundation to still continue to chase that dream. And I feel that a lot of these guys that, that pop that go into that world, they don't have a backup plan. Like this is all they were going after. <laughs> this is it. And if it doesn't work, if they like, you get to the show, you're at the show and it's like the baseball player. All he does is work and work and work to play baseball all his life. And they get to the, and they get to the majors and they blow out their knee and that's it. It happens all the time to athletes, whether NBA, NFL, uh, or major league baseball, mm-hmm. or NBA. They all their lives they've been focusing on going after the one goal of playing in the big leagues, which would be playing in the studio system for us. And when something happens, 
you blow out a knee, something happens, you can't play anymore, or you or you're you're basically oh you're, that movie that they gave you, it didn't do financially what they wanted you to do, so you're gone now. Now you've got to figure something else out, and that's where so many of these guys fail. Um, you've got to have a foundation to build off of, to launch yourself off of. Um, if not, you're you're basically playing on the tightrope, you know. And and look, how many filmmakers we know that did four, five, six movies, but then they have like whatever happened to Wolfgang Peterson? He's a great filmmaker. Where's where's, where's Wolfgang? <laughs> where's Wolfgang? What happened to Wolfgang? It's called the Poseidon. Once Poseidon bombed, he was he got put in director jail. He's made some of the great movies of our generation. And Wolfgang Peterson, I haven't heard from him. There's so many of these directors who are gone after certain amounts. And if they don't have anything else to back up from, they better hope save the money that they did when they were eating high in the hog. Because if they don't, then, you know, all of a sudden, um, unfortunately, you turn into Gary Coleman. Um, you know, who was making millions of dollars and then yeah. assen- and essentially crashed and burned. Uh, you know, he was a, a security guard um, after a while because he didn't have a foundation. They didn't build something out for them. That's a different scenario. But you get you understand the, the analogy. You have to have that foundation to be able to build something off. If, if we want to go real quickly, I, I always like using this example um, on, the, on the kid star thing. Um, the, mm-hmm. the, the, Olsen, the Olsen twins. You have the Olsen twins and you have Gary Coleman, okay? Both okay. pretty much the biggest um, stars of their time. And also Urkel. Let's throw Urkel in there as well. Uh, I forgot his name, but Urkel, the, the, the kid actor played Urkel. So Gary Coleman went down generally the path that is like legendary, mythical. He was the biggest you know, TV star of his time. He had a run on a very big show. He made millions of dollars. And then because the parents weren't there to build something for him, help him build a foundation, help him build a career, um, he basically crashed and burned. And unfortunately, what happened to Gary happened to Gary. The Olsen twins uh, had good people around them and figured out, hey, let's start building something ourselves. And they started making these independent family films starring the girls straight to VHS. They ba- And then after their whole build, they built out such an empire that it was over a billion dollars. And, and just a billion dollars in worth of, of the Olsen mm-hmm. twins empire. That's insanity. But they built a foundation because once Full House was done, they had somewhere to go and they knew that their window of opportunity might not last for 10, 15 years. It might be only six, seven, eight, ten 10 years total from the moment where they started to their early teens, maybe early 20s, and they're done. That's it. They can't generate revenue anymore, so they built that foundation. And I heard from—I don't know if I—I I don't know if it was from you. Was it from you? Uh, did you? Were you the one that met Urkel? In a no, I didn't know. Okay, so Not it was a, another filmmaker who met Urkel at a some you know talk, and he came up to him and he was talking to him, and Urkel really, um, told him he's like, "Oh, I'm in real estate. I own like <laughs> I own like six buildings. Uh, my parents bought all these buildings for me with the money because he was making." Obsce- I mean, he was making obscene amounts of money, like the last four years of that show. Because mm-hmm. the first few, he was like screwed because he had a ra- bad contract. But like the last four or five years, he was making millions. And his parents were smart enough that he's like, nope, we're going to buy you. And he bought him like six, seven, eight apartment buildings. And that generates so much revenue for him that he's good because he has a foundation. He has a business that's paying him. And then he can go off and direct and he could go off and uh, act. And he could do whatever you want. That's the basic principle of what we're talking about here. 
That is that story scenario was great because you'll find a lot of people like that. Um, there's somebody we know that's in the film education space, you know, and you that's been around for a long time. And mm-hmm. I think it was, uh, Dove Simmons, I think, you yeah. know, like, Dove. but apparently, apparently, I think he's made a lot of his money in real estate. Most of his like, money so, in real estate, yeah, yeah, most of his money. I met an actor. I was I was acting. So for a while there, I've been you know making a part time living up here in Portland uh, as an actor, and I was on the show Grimm. And I was working along this character actor who's been in everything from Iron Man to American Sniper. He always plays like a mil- like either FBI agent, a military guy. He's just got that look, yeah. Nondescript white guy that just plays those types of characters. Real, real quick, show. Real, real quick, what is your description, sir? <laughs> what is your stereotype? So I, I yes, I was fortunate again. Talking about a little a, a little little lottery ticket. Um, that's primary uh, white actors, and I since I'm half Asian, half white. Um, I had this, they've come to describe my type as the ambiguous, non-threatening ethnic. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Non-threatening ethnic. But that is your, that is, that is, that is a perfect niche for you. And that got you work because there was not many other, there was little competition in that space where you, where you live. (laughs) (laughs) So it's important to understand, like I, I was, I was, I could help sell a lot of products that because my uh, my look or type was you you know you could go either way wherever you want to go like I was not threatening enough that um, that you know is going to deprement your product selling I could you know? I can't, and, and I can't also, sell your products or I couldn't I'm much yeah. more threatening than you are sir yeah. <laughs> just my facial I'm always yeah yeah I mean, it's, 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 it's I'm not going to work. <laughs> Well, that's, it's funny because, you know, all this stuff's going on. I remember being, you know, I've been, I was paid an actor's salary for being a spokesperson for a credit card company, banking company, beverage companies, like all these different companies. So again, the ability to, to turn it on, a head, on its head and say, I'm going to make my own show where I'm the spokesperson, spokesperson for my mm-hmm. own company, mm-hmm. which happens to be this, the real estate services. So you know, sometimes I, you know, I've been asked to be like um, a spokesperson for some other people's real estate companies prior. So I said, well, why don't I just be, get the license? You know, so th- there's the through line right there. But while I was working on the sh- that sh- that episode, this particular actor, it was, you know, for any other actor, his resume is very impressive, and he's been able to be in all these major projects before. Not a na- known name, just working actor. And uh, he was mentioning like, oh no, no, I'm a full time real estate agent down in LA like this, you know, I just do this when it, it comes up. I thought to myself, that's all I need to know. You know what I mean? It's like, it's one of those I'm things, out. you know, I'm out. I'm going to do yeah. this. No, it's just like, it, it changed my perspective. Like you need these <laughs> moments. And this is hopefully this conversation is these moments for people listening. Yep. It's like, you need to hear these things so that it's a shift so that you can look at it differently, but still feel whole. Like you, you finally felt like Alex Ferrari. Like this is you mm-hmm. running, you're hustling the world of mm-hmm. indie film hustle. Um, you know, I was on a, a self exploration trying to find out what is the the secret to all this, and, and then how do I apply it for myself moving forward? So a lot of this stuff is: does it mean that I'm not going to you know make the next you know narrative or feature? Um, no, it just means that I for for the last few years I had to like get my home base squared away first. 
you know? <laughs> yeah. You have to build then, your foundation. You have to build the foundation. Build your foundation. And then you move forward. And the great thing, again, you know, we'll talk about really quick some other case studies. I know that we're running long. This oh, one, but, no, you know. no, please, guys. It's the last one. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Scott, just go. Do you have somewhere to go, Scott? I don't. I'm stuck here in quarantine as well. So let's just talk, sir. Let's just yeah. talk. <laughs> okay. So hopefully you're getting a lot of stuff out of this. So we can talk about some other case studies, understanding your foundation, mm-hmm. um, meaning that the great quote that I always love is, is for, I, I, someone said it's from Mike Tyson. I guess it's from Mike Tyson. The one that says, everyone's got a plan until you get punched in the face. Amen. <laughs> and I teach that stuff. And we are literally, as a world, we all had a plan. Yes. We all got punched in the face by this epi- pandemic. Mm-hmm. So now we got to pivot. Now we got to change. Yes. Now we got to adapt. Yes. You know, and we can't sit and cry. Like, buckle down. You know, we are in some weird ways that this could be like our version of the great depression. Like there was the, you know, things just change in terms oh, of no, like it's, it's perspective. Com- and absolutely. And my last podcast, I just did this last week as of this recording, I, I basically had the first part of my podcast. It was, it was about side hustles, uh, in, in, yeah. the, in the pandemic times, uh, how to make some money. But I started, I'm like, Hey guys, there's a, I want you all to know that there are filmmakers and screenwriters out there who are still thinking that when this is over, it's going to go back to the way it was. I have a rude awakening for you. It will not. It will be changed and it will be different. And if you do not pivot and do not change thinking, you're thinking about how things are going. We don't, nobody knows how it's going to end up. Nobody knows in six months where we're going to be. But you have to be aware and be just kind of like getting ready, getting ready to kind of like take advantage of opportunities that present themselves because in these moments in time is where the big changes, where out of the ashes come the new, the new evolutions, the new things that take us forward as a, as an industry. Like look in 2008, streaming started to come on board from Netflix and that look at how that completely revolutionized our business. There are moments in time and this is that moment in time. So you have to think that nothing's going to be the same. I just have to educate myself, take advantage, educate myself, prepare myself, figuring things out. How am I going to think differently? Because if you're thinking the same, you will not make it. Yeah. And then agreed again, we all got punched in the face, (laughs) you know, so let's move forward. But like at the core, you know, we're talking about foundations and the core principles. Um, One of the things that's great about the filmmaking or the need, artistic need is to be able to tell a story, whatever that format might be. If you are a writer, you know, all these, I know we know a lot of screenwriters. You have the bulletproof screenwriting or screenplay. Is it screenwriting? Screenwriting. 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 Okay. Bulletproof screenwriting. You know, so at the core, you're starting there and saying like, hey, this is important. There is this visceral like um, enjoyment and struggle and pain of crafting a story, you know, Mm -hmm. and finishing it in a format, if it's written format, like that's the first step. Like mm-hmm. you're just excited for somebody to read your script. You know, um, one of the things I discovered in my time running film trooper was that it was so much fun just writing the, the, the screenplay for the cube and then making it just, just the process of doing that and feeling satisfied going, you know what it, there was a beginning, middle and end. I, I completed a thought, like I completed something of this I reflect on it. I go, my God, look how bad it is. So, <laughs> so oh man, oh yeah, we all ha- we we all have those. Moments. Yeah. So, 
So, but when I, I thought about it, it was like, but I was able to make something for so little money without a crew. You finished. Go, what if, what if the story was better? What if the story was better? So that got me back to the core principles of that. But then writing the book, um, how to make and sell your film online and survive the Hollywood implosion while doing it, that process, you know, you've written several books since we've known the, my God, the, the discipline of sitting down, buckling down and mm. finishing these chapters mm. is mm. brutal. Mm -hmm. That last five, 10% is brutal. Like you can get a lot done, but that, it's just finishing it. What's worse, brutal. worse, worse for me is the audiobook. book. Oh, it's oh, so brutal. It's so brutal reading your own stuff and performing and oh, it was horrible. But yes, it's not easy. It's not easy. So, um, no. So, but what the joy out of that was finishing it, having it in a real paperback form. Like it's, it's tangible, like, oh. you know, it's something oh, real, yeah. mm -hmm. but yes, the audiobook too, like just having all that stuff, it's done. It exists out there. But it got, got me thinking, like, I remember I was a huge, we're fans of podcasts, you know, prior to starting my own podcast, I was a fan of the creative writing screen, uh, screenwriting podcast, uh, uh, Goldblum, I think it was not Goldblum, uh, Goldberg, mm -hmm. forget his last name, Jeff something. Um, he was the host. He did a great job. He did these private screenings in LA, different theaters. And after the movie was finished, you, they would have this podcast interview for an hour plus with the screenwriter or sometimes the filmmakers. And then he turned that into, um, a Q and a or something in his own podcast. So he left as a, as a senior editor for screenwriting, creative screenwriting magazine, and then turned his own podcast into the same format. But one of the guests he had, which I can't remember her name, she was a proposedly like a legendary screenwriter who wrote a, a script that did very well. Mm -hmm. And they were, in retrospect, interviewing her. But it was really fascinating to hear what she had to say at the end. She says, you know what? If I would have known now, what you know, back then, you know, whatever, like if the stuff that I know now, which I got to apply back then, she said, I, instead of just writing the screenplay, I would have written the book. I would have read it like a television. She was already realizing like I had control over the content that I created, the, the, the license the that I created that she could exploit many different ways. After – I don't know if you're experienced, but after writing this book, even though it's not a creative narrative book like um, how to – you know, my book and your book, they're information mm -hmm. books. But the process of doing it got me thinking like, wait a minute. The next story that I should be working on, I should make – a book version, a narrative story, then you could turn that into a script and then you can make your movie and you can say, Hey, this is a movie that's based on the book. And if you know how to work Amazon's book selling oh, yeah. algorithms, you mm -hmm. could say, this is movies based on the best selling book for one week or one day. Oh, it's, yeah. oh no, no, no. absolutely. Absolutely. So when I meet screenwriters, I I try to tell them like, is there a way they can turn this into a narrative? And people are like, people think like books need to be long prose and they're like two, 300 pages. I want people to go and get the book called A Monster Calls. Remember that movie that came out mm -hmm. with the tree and it was up for a couple of years ago? Well, it's a very touching, sad story. But if you read the book, I'm telling you, it is very short, easy to read. It will change your perspective of what a book really means in terms of the formatting. Because you can re you can read this in that book, that narrative book, and say to yourself, this is a script that just got turned into a narrative in the most creative, simple way. 
And so now you can create a book from your screenplay. So you have multiple sources that way. Mm -hmm. And if you're able to become a producer or make the film and you put together a team, it could be, and you work the understanding what it makes to sell a book online. Um, listen to Alex's podcast, read his book, read my book, listen to my podcast there are, or just go down that rabbit hole. You can see that you can on a very low budget way still tell your story, which is the, which is the core of it, which is like the, the creative release of like, I had a thought, I wanted to put it in a narrative form. I did it. It exists in a tangible way and it's out there being marketed properly. Uh, I'll I'll tell you when I launched um, Rise of the Film Entrepreneur, I didn't. The day that I put it out for presale, I also launched an entire website, an entire podcast, a YouTube channel, everything at once. And uh, I remember when you you called me like, what, what, I, "Dude, what are you what are you doing, man? How do you?" <laughs> so I always yeah. love when you call or text me like, "What are you what how, what?" Um, because I already <laughs> realized that this isn't going to be a one off. Um, I can build something around the concept of being a film entrepreneur and provide more value to my audience uh, other than just the book. The only thing I'm missing is the course, which I am working on, uh, which is the online mm -hmm. course on t going deeper and doing a deeper dive than the book does. Um, and that would kind of create the holistic ecosystem of the film entrepreneur method. It it's so – I mean I can't explain to you um, – how valuable that is because I have multiple revenue streams coming in off the book, which then I used my movies and I'm making more money off the books than I am off the movies that I talk about in my books uh, and so on. And there's just <laughs> so many different revenue streams coming in from this one idea, this one source, as opposed to the normal way of going about it, which is where you write the book, you find a distributor, you are a publisher. You get through, go to them. You get ten percent if you're lucky, um, mm -hmm. and you own nothing, and uh, that's it. And you pray that they're going to put it out there. And if they don't, you're screwed. And that would have been the normal way of going about it. But I decided, no, no, I'm going to take control of this book. Where my first book wasn't that. I did go with a traditional distributor or publisher with that. Um, that's another podcast for another day. But uh, I take this, and now I'm able to generate monthly revenue streams that are still coming in and surprising me monthly on what I'm able to generate uh, coming off of that. Do mm -hmm. you know uh, the story of um, JK Rowling and her, her uh, film entrepreneurial um, in, in, inclinations with the Harry Potter series? Do you know what she owns and what she doesn't own? Could uh, share with us. I don't know all the details. Okay. So obviously when she wrote her first book, she was nobody. She was on welfare. She, you know, nobody wanted the book and so on. Then it blew up. Obviously, it got picked up and it, and it kind of exploded from there. She did own the I, I do, I do, hold on. I do know that, uh, I just want to interject there. Like, I, if I understand correctly, when eventually got to a publisher, these publishers have um, uh, relationships with producers, the smart, savvy producers, film producers, know what books are on the horizon before they're ever released mm -hmm. to the public. Yeah, yeah. So I think the if I understand correctly the 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 film producer got wind of this manuscript before they even published it. So it was, it was on the radar to be made an option into a film anyway. So it's one of those things like that that's like a its own sub industry is like Oh yeah, Jurassic you know, Park was that way. Michael Crichton, I mean Spielberg had it before the book ever came out. 
Right. So in terms of how that industry works, so I'm sorry, but I just want to make sure I got that in there before people understand, like there's another sub industry where people are increasing their probability of successful project Mm -hmm. because they are injecting themselves into the decision makers um, for mass media you know, and you might be find yourself down that track one day, but just see how it works. But just to understand, so she was smart enough to understand uh, that she needed to control some stuff. So I don't know the details, but I know that she she had leverage, meaning that if they wanted more books, they're going to have to do what she says. So she, as far as the movie rights and so on, um, they made so much money that they basically gave her the keys to the castle. Essentially, and and that r- it rarely happens. But the one thing that she has that I had no idea she owns, she owns the ebook of all the po- she owns the rights hundred percent to all the ebooks for Harry Potter, and it's sold exclusively through her website. So when you go to Amazon, this is how big Harry Potter is that Jeff Bezos had to kowtow to her. When you go to Amazon and you click on buy an ebook of Harry Potter, it goes to their website, her website. Mm. And she that alone, that one move alone made her a multi-billionaire um, because of that move. And on top of the, re- the revenue and uh, all the licensing and she gets – I don't know how much percentage she gets of off the, the merch and stuff like that. But I'm sure it's, it's, it's good. It's good. But that was thinking she, – she was thinking differently already. She was already like, you know what? I'm going to control this, this, and this uh, because I have a very unique scenario here. Um, and that and that's what happened with George Lucas. But George did it really slickly with, with Star Wars. He's like, look, don't pay me a whole extra lot of money. Look, I'll take a cut on my directing. Just give me the, the, the sequel rights and uh, this merchandising stuff. You know, you guys don't even do stuff. The last big thing that came out was Dr. Doolittle and it died on merchandise. Let me just have the merchandise. And they said, sure, no problem. Uh, and that one moment, <laughs> it was like it was like Bill Gates and IBM. IBM's like, Bill's like, you know what? I'm, I don't want to sell you my software of DOS. I need you to license it. License it. I need you to, and that one, that one moment in time created the rich, the richest man in the world created one of the biggest fortunes in the history of this world. And it was just, just thinking just a little bit differently. You know, let's, let's another way I think differently, but it seems tangible, like mm-hmm. reachable right now. Like for anybody listening, this is what you could do. I'm going to use this as a case study from Aaron Mankey, who does the lore podcast. So L O R E it's like, you know, scary stories. So the, the big thing to uh, look at this case study is he's a writer. He writes like scary books. And because it's just him writing, mm-hmm. he's able to write his books, mm-hmm. upload them to Amazon. Mm-hmm. He can make a hardback co- copy, yep. a paperback copy, like all the Audi- services are available, mm-hmm. Amazon, audiobook, everything. So what he does is he did a, he wrote a few novels, original fictitious, scary story novels, and but he decided to start a podcast. His podcast is called Lore, L-O-R-E, and he, what it was is sort of like almost like a glorified Wikipedia research. So he, in his, his efforts to create his art, his art is writing books on scary stories, is he has to do research on you know, folklore and, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, all this type of stuff. And in his process of doing this research, he turns it into a podcast. So, boom, the podcast, for some reason, took off. 
It was just the right niche. It got picked up. If you understand how to work like the podcast um, launch, you know, like for a while there, there was like if you wanted to get um, high rankings in Apple mm-hmm. uh, podcast, you have like eight weeks to make something happen. So he a little bit of luck, a little high probability. He was creating his stuff. It got picked up. It got um, a lot of followers following his scary story podcast mm-hmm. um, and it started taking off. But he was using the podcast. Mm-hmm. It's so blatant to let people know that he writes scary stories and he can find uh-huh. the links afterwards. Yep. So he was he was doing the film trooperneur or the mm-hmm. film trooper. Like by the way, it's funny because you have film trooperneur and mine is film trooper. Because for a while there, I was messing around with different taglines like empowering the film entrepreneur. Mm. So we're all in the same. You and I are in the same mindset. Yeah, absolutely. So, so he was doing this. He's not a filmmaker, but he was a storyteller. And he had different means to tell his story. And this thing takes off. All of a sudden, like some of the producers from Walking Dead are listening to his podcast. <laughs> they turn. He gets – one thing leads to another and he gets this into an Amazon series. So if you go on to Amazon Prime, there is a, an anthology called Lore. So they've taken an existing – audience that had a following on his lore podcast mm-hmm. that was enough to get the right meetings in place to turn it into a series on amazon it hasn't blown up you know but it doesn't have still to a, doesn't it, have to it what we're saying to. here this is a real case study that doesn't necessarily have to do with high a lot of, like luck or high probability this is just somebody i'm writing i like to write scary stories i'm going to put another aspect of my world out there in a podcast to share my research, but I'll do it creatively. But then I'll use the podcast as a self-published author to drive people to my book sales. Yes. That's it. Yes. Let's be honest. I'm going to to uncover it. My podcast ended up turning out to be like a a free content um, marketing advertisement for my book. Mm -hmm. And I still make money on my book today. Mm-hmm. You know, on a monthly basis. And Alex will probably attest to with all the different revenue streams he has with Indie Film Hustle and all this all the offshoots of it. Those are revenue streams that are, you know, making monthly and that we're not talking retirement money. We're just talking like for me, I just make enough money to pay for the online services to, to keep it going. Like I'm not it's not like I'm like, you know, buying houses from this stuff. It's like you're not seeing that kind of money. And you're not gonna see that kind of money with your film per se. You know, if we we break it down, but at least the lore, Aaron Menke's, um, I think is pronounced his last name correctly. That is a tangible case study. Absolutely, that we can wrap our heads around saying that's something that you can chip at and make something work. And in the book, I use I use the case study of like if you're a horror director um, and you want to make zombie movies, uh, would it be cool? Would it be, make sense to create a zombie podcast or a podcast that leverages? the biggest zombie property on the planet, which is Walking Dead. So maybe you have a a show that talks about the show or about zombies and build up an audience of zombie lovers through your podcast. Oh, and by the way, I also am a filmmaker who makes zombie movies. And then, oh, guys, you know, I I know we just saw The Walking Dead. My new movie's coming out next week on Amazon and on iTunes or wherever. Uh, If you want, if you want exclusive to this, um, get to blah, blah, blah. And then, oh, by the way, I also make zombie t-shirts and zombie hats and zombie merch and zombie, all this stuff because he's been able to understand who his audience is, his niche audience. Like I say, the riches are in the niches. He understands his niche audience. He's creating content and being of service to that audience. And then he's also selling them his art. 
And, and by that time that you've given them so much free content, so much amazing service that there is a percentage of the audience that will reciprocate and will purchase your merch, will purchase uh, your movies, your offsprings, off the st- stuff of the movies. Maybe you have events. Maybe you have zombie uh, get-togethers. There's so many ways to monetize and to build revenue streams that is not only just about the money. It's about being of service to the community. If you are not of service, this does not work. If you walk into it only thinking about money, it will not work. You have to think about being of service and everything else. You know, when you are able to be of service to a community and you're trying to build a business to, to keep your art or yourself, uh, to sustain yourself, um, then the money will come. You have to start thinking about how, how you can provide that service, uh, even better to that audience. But that's a great example. Podcast, look, I'm you and me both podcasting was, it's my, my, I'm not a YouTube star. Uh, by any stretch, um, <laughs> because it was a lot of competition in that space. But when I jumped into the podcasting space, which you're you're older than I am as far as being in the podcasting space, you were already around when I jumped in. Um, but I've been in it almost five years, and there wasn't a lot of competition. There wasn't a lot of filmmaking podcasts. Now there's a ton trying to do it. But you know, I'm one of the I'm one of the last standing um, from our time. You know, when I started, there was not. There's a lot of guys that were mm-hmm. around when I walked in are not there anymore. Um, they're just not because this is a hard. Yeah. This is hard, and if you can't figure out how to monetize, if you can't figure out how to be of service and then monetize um, that audience in one way, shape, or form to benefit them and benefit yourself, you can't keep going unless it's just a hobby. And when it's a hobby, it's a it's a tough hustle, man. Well, an episode yeah. a week, you know it. Episode a week, and I was doing three. Uh, I do three to four episodes a week now um, through all my podcasts. Um, it's it's a lot, but, uh, but yeah, that's, uh, that's it. Yeah. Well, you know, you, I, the, the fact that you brought up the zombie analogy or the case study, I, I think that's great for people. I want to unpack that a little bit more because we get into wanting to do a movie or tell a story about a certain subject, yeah. you know, and this thought of like, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to live in this world for a long time. You know, I, we know a lot of filmmakers that are still, they made a, a good film that, but they're at the same time, they, it's five, six, almost 10 years of the same subject matter. Cause it, it takes that long to build traction of something they made where, you know, creatively, sometimes you just like, I want to make something, be done with it, move on to something creative, another mm-hmm. thing. Sure. And the idea that you have to build an audience uh, for each subject matter is daunting oh it's, and it's so huge it's, it's monstrous yeah. it's daunting it's hard mm-hmm. so like you said like if you're going to be a, if you're a zombie enthusiast then that could be something that you're good with we and um one of the things i offer with people you know come in um to to film trooper is i offer a hack like how do you build your audience quickly and the hack is make a fan film like um you know like star wars fan films some Batman, people start with stars. Yeah. yeah, Batman versus well, aliens, yeah, stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. So but you do a Star Wars fan film, you can get a lot more followers to your movie. And then if you can get a little bit of following out of that, you can tell them the next project you're working on. You know, that might as long as it's in the same ilk of like sci-fi, sure. you know, fantasy or whatever it is. So that was a big struggle for me. On if we're gonna break down case studies and things like that, is like I reached a point with independent filmmakers where I don't know if I could service them, uh, be of service to them, 
um, as opposed to service them. But anyway, the <laughs> be of service, be service to them. Um, as because I was watching what you were doing, like I think Alex has got it. Like he's going oh, thanks, bananas. Man. Like I, I may not be able to offer as much, you know, more than where I've I've hit this crossroad where I was like I became more interested in like exploring another audience, and so the the ability to create a show like my little show around the neighborhood again started from scratch. I was became a neighborhood. I was interested in neighborhood stories Mm -hmm. and that allowed me to just focus on that. And then that met, allowed me to meet all these different people in town, which again, I understand that's my byproduct is real estate, but you're talking about being of service to somebody of, you know, a lot of times like I'll do the show and people want to talk to me about other things, but by just meeting them and helping them with um, right now, we're talking about musicians being hit hard. We're talking about like if, they're if they can't make money just selling their music online because there's no money or, in it, or merch they have or to rely on live per- merchandise or live performances. All these musicians that I know locally that were making a regular living playing gigs, they can't play gigs anymore. So now they're online, and so and now you see all these Facebook Live, you know, footage of somebody playing guitar, like send me some money and things like that. It's like it's getting a little daunting, you know, the virtual tip jar. So I'm working with some local musicians, helping them out, and you know, I'm not being paid a lot, but I, but I realize I'm helping them out. They're um, they're both hall, um, hall of Fame inductees to the Oregon Music Hall of Fame here. So so I'm helping tell a story of like their life in music, and then they would play music, and it's just a set of, uh, standalone video that has like tip jar links mm-hmm. to where mm-hmm. they go. Well, because I was doing just helping some people out locally, again, mm-hmm. being of service with the with the skills that I have, that is end up turning into like uh, spawning like oh, turning into a little bit more of a documentary than I expected. You know, <laughs> good. On top of that, right? But on top of that, it's turning into. Um, but remember, my higher price service is real estate. Well, it looks like it's turning into a real estate deal as well. So it's like, you know what I mean? It's like I didn't go out like hard press and selling it. It was simply being of service to a community. Again, breaking it down to the audience. Like I had to like do some deep soul searching of like which audience do I – which audience can I serve in a long term? Like Mm -hmm. I'm thinking 30 years that I'm going to be enjoying each time I get out there and do it. I think Film Trooper kind of reached an apex for me where it's like I'm not too sure I'm enjoying because I don't feel like I'm just gathering and curating information. I'm not applying it. And the filmmakers I'm talking to, there's doesn't seem like enough of them are applying it, you know? So mm-hmm. it's like I'm, I got to move away from like filmmakers and I got to apply what we're talking about. And then, then I have to find a new audience, an audience that I, that I really truly think I could serve for the next 30 years and do that. And so that's a question I think a lot of people have to ask themselves. Like, you know, if you find yourselves going down the a path of making a film, can you live with this subject matter and the audience around it for the next 10 years? You know, that's something. It, it, yeah. It all, yeah, it all depends on your your perspective. Like I know some horror guys who just love horror movies and, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it's not a, 
big stretch from zombie to horror. So if you're in that same kind of niche in general, the horror niche, if you're a horror guy and you're going to do horror for the rest of your life, I mean, Guillermo del Toro is probably not going to make a comedy, though I would love to see a comedy like that by Guillermo del Toro. <laughs> but generally, he's he's good. He's going to be horror for the rest of his life, and he's very comfortable with that, and that's no, no issues with that at all. So you have to ask yourself the question, um, where am I going to be in 10 years? Do I want to keep doing this? A lot of times you don't know that answer, man. You know, like I, you know, you remember I, I owned an olive oil and vinegar, you know, yes. shop and a company. Um, if you would have told me I was going to open up that, like you know, eight years ago, I would have said you're crazy, you're nuts. But I did. You never know what happens during the path. But this is one thing that is true. If um, tomorrow I decide to stop, you know, creating amazing, uh, amazing amounts of content that I do for. Uh, indie film hustle, bulletproof screenwriting, or film entrepreneur, um, this machine will continue to run without me at the helm. It might drop in revenue, but the machine will continue to run while I build something else. So if you're able to build a machine that runs in that niche, you can still service that niche and service that machine and keep that machine going because it's generating enough revenue for you while you're off making another movie you know that's not a horror movie making or opening up an olive oil store or going into real Mm -hmm. estate or whatever that other other um opportunity might be but you have a business that's still creating money for yourself and still generate revenue while you're still able because you've created so much content i mean look i've got i got close to over 500 uh podcasts throughout all my podcasts that um, that's a lot of content. That's just the podcast, not to mention the videos and all the other stuff that I do. That's a lot of that's evergreen. That's going to keep finding, you know, I, I got articles from 2015 that are really popular and people still find it all the time and it's evergreen stuff. So if you're able to build up a business uh, in that niche that you're doing and generating those revenue streams, uh, there's no reason why you can't pull back from that, go down the other path and either let that do its thing or just feed it every once in a while or hire someone to feed it. Maybe hire someone to take it over where you're still generating revenue and you're still servicing that audience. But now you're moving into another direction in your life because you never know what's going to happen. You know, I don't, you know, I, like I said, if you would have told me I was going to open up an olive oil store, I'd be like, what? Like, <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. Still doesn't make any sense. It was a dark time in my life. I don't want to talk about it, but, um, <laughs> but, but you never know. But, Again, the foundation is, is is sound. If you're able to build a business with your films uh, in that audience, then there's no reason why that can't keep going. If you've done it correctly, if you've built a very strong foundation up, uh, if you haven't built a strong foundation up or wasn't making enough money when you were up 100%, then it doesn't make any sense. It has to kind of die off. Um, but look, I, I have a great, uh, a great example. If everyone listening knows Wes Craven, the famous horror director who – kind of fell into horror. Horror wasn't his thing, really wasn't the biggest thing in his life. He liked it and he enjoyed doing it, but he eventually wanted to break out of horror. And the only time that I know of that he did a movie outside the horror genre was after he did Scream. They really wanted him to do Scream 2. He's like, okay, I'll do Scream 2, but you've got to give me a movie. And that movie was called Music of the Heart, which was about... A drama about 500 violins that go to a, a, a low-income school, starring Meryl Streep and Gloria Estefan, and had like in sync in it. And like that was 
that was the, the movie he wanted to make. And it's, by the way, wonderful film. I enjoyed that film a lot. It was really a wonderful film. But it didn't do box office numbers. And guess what? He didn't get a chance again. So now he goes back and he does Scream 2 and he continues his his path down that road. But I know, because mm-hmm. uh, I actually had, I was really good friends with um, his personal assistant at the time, that he um, he really wanted to break out of that, especially as he got older. As he got mm-hmm. old, like what what excited me at twenty does not excite me now in at my yeah. age at forty five. It just doesn't. The filmmaker I was in my twenties is not the filmmaker I am in my forties. So you mm-hmm. have to give yourself the opportunity to adjust. But if you're smart and you build your your foundation and you build revenue streams, whether that be in the business or by apartment buildings, uh, and have you know have revenue stream, have cash flow coming in to kind of um, support your creative endeavors. That is the dream. That is the goal. And there's no reason why you can't have your cake and eat it too, in my opinion. Yeah, definitely. So here's some other um, case studies that are things like impressions that have that made a big impact on me over the years of running, you know, Film Trooper and the podcast and different people I've talked to. Um, one of the guys was this fellow that I was in a, in a mastermind with for a while. He's out in New York. He ran. Uh, he runs Bloop Animation. So if you go to YouTube, mm-hmm. go yeah. Bloop Animation, Warmer Rose. He just started off doing like being a fan of animation, 3D animation, Pixar animations, you know, Disney animation, and then he used his uh, growth in his YouTube channel, um, giving short t- t- tutorials, and then he turned into selling courses, beginning animation courses. And then that led to building more courses and that built to building courses on the different software because not every animation software the same, but at the same time he's making short films. So he's like, I'm making this short film. So he's a filmmaker. We're talking an animator that made his own animating animation, but he, but behind all that stuff, he had a YouTube presence that was giving edu- you know, edutainment. So it was educating, but also, um, entertaining, but he had a mechanism in place where he was selling his courses. Mm-hmm. So this builds this whole company. And let me, I, because we were the mastermind together, there was a lot of years. He was also getting hired as a contract for hire animator at different studios. So he's making like his, his day money as an animator uh, for contract for hire. And then at night he was, or whatever on the side side hustle, his side hustle was blue animation building courses doing YouTube videos, and then that grew. So then he didn't have to take on as much um, contract work. And then he started meeting other animators, and they started collectively you know, doing their own uh, short, other short films. So, and it just keeps growing. And every, you know, he just, new courses come out. So it's just, the whole point is that he built a, he built the film entrepreneur system in place. Mm-hmm. He gets to make his animated films, mm-hmm. but there's a mechanism behind it that allows this to continue. Got to pay. You got to pay to play, brother. You got to pay to play. Unless you've got, a, unless you're rich or you got, you know, a trust fund somewhere, you've got to figure out how to make some money. This is the world we live in, man. You know, unfortunately. So this is what has to be done. I know it's not sexy. It's not sexy building up a bill. I think it's sexy, but a lot of people they're like, I don't want to build the work of building a business. I'm an artist. I'm like, okay, man. Then you know what, uh, Da Vinci is it Da Vinci or? or um, uh, Michelangelo, one of the two, I think it was Da Vinci, who, you know, he was an artist, um, but he was, ex- he wasn't a starving artist. The whole concept of the starving artist is such BS. 
um, because Da Vinci was an extremely savvy businessman, had multiple revenue streams coming in. He was extremely wealthy. He was probably one of the most wealthy people around in his uh, in his town uh, in Italy. Um, because he was doing a million different things and he was hustling all over the place. So he was able to generate all this revenue and still be able to create the art that he wanted to create uh, with, you know, sometimes it was commission, sometimes it wasn't. Um, but that concept is something that we in this world that we live in today have to understand. If you want to be in show business, you need to understand the business. As our, our friend Suzanne Lyon says, the word show mm-hmm. and there's the word business and the word business has twice as many letters as the word show. And there's a reason. So if you don't understand the business, you will not get to do the show. There's a, it's, it's interesting you brought up Da Vinci. I read his book, uh, the Walter Isaacson book on him. Yeah. It was fantastic. Very long, but right. He, you know, the, he got into plays. He was, not, he was just not a painter. He was a lot of other things. Oh, that architect, were, everything. But one is, of yeah. the, one of the other aspects that you brought up that I want to make sure are the people listening is there's a thing about a champion. We talked about early on about David F. Sandberg, how James Wan came mm-hmm. in as a champion. Um, there is this thing that's true out there. Like you said, there is in the world of filmmaking, there is that lottery ticket. But it's essentially, are you creating good enough content, good enough films that are interesting enough? And are you getting them in the right in front of the right people mm-hmm. and cre- increasing your probability of moving to the next level because what you're looking for is that champion. Somebody, if you look through the trajectory of other, all your favorite filmmakers, there's always like, you realize like, wait, there's always somebody behind it that is, was really helping it push forward. Oh yeah. Um, you know, um, well, Walt Disney without his brother, Roy, who was the banker, the, the the logical one, the financier, the one who's making things happen, you know, Walt Disney would not be as successful as he was. You Correct. know, the, every, if you want to be an artist, you better partner up with a trusted, and the key word is trusted, because a lot of artists get taken advantage of, no matter what for, uh, format you're in, music, art, you know, um, movies, whatever, acting, people will get, taken advantage of if you don't have the right um, champion in place. And so you have to do what you need to do to increase your probability of finding the right champion or putting yourself in the place to get to the next level, the right champion. So that's one of the major takeaways that I got from running the podcast is really breaking down sort of that through line like, oh, that's interesting if you want to get to the next level that way. I I found my my perspective on the champion is – that I got tired of chasing the champion and trying to mm-hmm. um, try to get the attention of the champion in the in the traditional ways. So I just decided to create bait for that champion to find my to find me. And that bait could be an amazing short film that happens to f- fall on this person's desk. That happens, but that again is a lottery ticket in today's world. Where if you build enough noise, you build an audience, you build something. That is makes you stand out from the crowd because, yeah, everybody and their mother has a good short film, but not everybody and their mother has an audience around the art or the work of a filmmaker and or company. And that is the new way, in my opinion, to get attention in Hollywood. Hollywood cares. I was talking to an actor, a seasoned, very seasoned actor, friend of mine who had coffee the other day, and he was telling me he was in um. In a in a casting, 
And he was telling me how the, the world changed because he used to be one of those actors who uh, he, he played like the bus driver, the landlord. Mm-hmm. Um, he just plays that guy. And he would be able to play um, the dad uh, in these um, in these national spots. He'd do one or two national spots a year. He's good the rest of the year offer residuals because the business has changed so much that residuals are gone or going away. Actors are, are, are getting – it's going to become worse and worse for actors as far as residual payments are concerned. He was walking in doing a casting and he uh, was there helping uh, a friend of theirs. He was like – he was basically just uh, reading lines for the other people. He's like, hey, do you want to come in? We'll pay you X dollars to sit there and read lines all day. And he did. And he would have – and he sit there and it would just be the, the uh, producers – and the second they would, before the, the person would walk in, they're like, uh, John, John Smith's coming in, 75. And then it was like, uh, Betsy's coming in, 225. And then they're like, oh, 10. And, and, and these numbers would just be spurred out. And, and then like at lunchtime, he, he, he pulled them all out, like, hey, what, what are the numbers? He goes, oh, that's their Instagram followers. Yeah. <laughs> That's their Instagram followers. Yep. Because even for actors, you can't just be an amazing actor. That's not enough. You can't, you can't just be the best looking, the most talented, right for the part. It doesn't matter anymore. It, it, it does to a certain extent. Of course, you. let me just put it this way. All the things I just said, that's the starting point. Before, that used to be the finish line. That's the starting point. You just have to understand that there's at least another 10 people who have as much talent as you, are as good looking as you, and are as perfect for the part as you. And the only thing that differentiates you guys is your following, is the audience that follows you. As stupid as that might be, that's what it is. Period. And that's the world the actors are starting to walk into, and they have been in that world for a little bit now. But now filmmakers are going to have to start doing that as well. Because their talent is great, and there's a lot of talented filmmakers out in the world. You're talking about generational for the last hundred, like alive, how many directors are there who are capable of creating amazing art and amazing cinema? There's just hundreds of thousands, if not millions, throughout um, throughout the last eighty years, let's say, who are still alive and able to do it. Uh, and let and also the new actors, all the new uh, directors and filmmakers that are coming up. So that's the that, there's just too much competition now. Um, right. But if you're able to control that audience, if you're able to build something, whether that be a book that you own, an IP that you own, something that makes you stand out and want them to come to you, then you're in a position of power uh, in that situation. And it's it's just starting to – you're not begging for an opportunity. You're having a conversation about being a partner. And there's a very distinct difference of having a conversation like, sir, can I can I please have some money for my movie, sir? Sir, with your hat out, or that same person walking in, hey, I want to I want to do business with you. That's a different conversation, and that's the place where I've figured out that that makes most sense for me is to partner with people, not to beg um, for opportunities. I create my own opportunities, and that's where you have to be in this world, I think. Right. And I want to definitely do the yes and. And. <laughs> I think there's some great things there. Right there. Yes. Yes. And because uh, now people listening to this, like said, like, you know, this is a marathon. This is like everything you're talking about. You and I, this is our opportunity to do this massive brain dump onto the audience mm-hmm. to, to close out this, this, this show that for me. Mm-hmm. But to do the yes and, 
it's true, which is I brought up again, like, uh, hacks, like, well, how would you, how does somebody get all those Instagram followers? How does somebody get a following if you're starting from scratch? And that's why we talked about, um, the, the, the advent of a hack, which is simply, okay, um, make a fan film. Like if you're a filmmaker, we're talking about filmmaking here. So you make a fan film and we say, I say, like, I just put star Wars out there. Sure. Um, but Star Wars, because there's already a built-in um, following for that kind of content. Mm-hmm. And it's the same adage of saying, like, if you want to be the leader of the parade, just jump in front of the parade. The the analogy there is instead of working your way from the very back line of the parade, trying to work your way up to the pr- top of the, the front of the parade, mm-hmm. if you jump in front of the, the leader of the parade, that means that there's an an audience already exists. A following mm-hmm. already exists. Mm-hmm. So how do you just jump in front? This hack of creating a fan film, like a Star Wars fan film, means that you can almost guarantee, if you do it correctly, by just making it for free, putting it up online, and tagging all the right places in Star Wars and all the fandoms that are out there and mm-hmm. Facebook and Instagram mm-hmm. and YouTube, yeah, yeah. that you'll probably get about 25,000 views on your movie. And but if it's really good, it gets reshared, and you could do millions. We're seeing Star Wars fan films in the millions, in the mi- millions of views. And your job is to make sure you have a mechanism in place to do what we call in the world of um, online marketing the conversion rate. So let's talk about the conversion rate real quick, so people get their heads wrapped around that. It, the days of like when you get mailers you know, like advertisements in the mail, like mm-hmm. go to bed, bath and beyond or whatever it might be, you know, mm-hmm. these are coupon. Um, in that world of marketing, direct mail marketing or direct, they call direct cons- to consumer marketing. The marketers are only hoping to get, they're expecting to get about a one to 2% conversion rate. Meaning that for every hundred mailers they put out, they're going to get a 1%, you know, one or two people on are going to, one or two people are going to show up. Yeah. That's, Maybe just show up. That doesn't, doesn't mean they're going to actually buy anything. Right. So that's why they have to do it in bulk. Why you have to have these vast numbers of like a million, you know, hundreds of thousands. Because then if you do the, just the mathematics, just count on it one to two percent. And does that actually work? Weirdly, it does. If I looked at the one thing that I've noticed, like you can take a look. Like if you have a mechanism in place for your film, um, for me, the cube was the, tr- I have a, the trailer for the movie online for years. And over time, um, you can do like a, a breakdown of like how many trailer views your movie gets do about a one to 2% conversion rate. That's how many people are probably going to buy your film or rent it. So you have to decide, like if I'm renting it for 99 cents or if I'm selling it for $10 and I'm only getting 20 people, you know, do the math. You know, you're, you're not going to make your money back unless you have some other mechanism in place. So some of the other case studies we have in terms of by having a star, like a Star Wars fan film or a fan film of some sort, you jump in front of the parade, you get like 25,000 views on your short film. Is there a way to, to con- do a 1% to 2% conversion of that following to your actual website, to the, to the behind the scenes things you're offering, to anything about how you made the film to get them onto a list we call it the email list? Get them so that they're following you so that mm-hmm. you can follow up with them later mm-hmm. with your own original movie. Mm-hmm. You know, hopefully it's of the same genre. So they're not totally thrown off. It has like, to be the same. It has to be the same genre. It has to be something. It has yes. to be, it has to be something similar until you build up enough 
street cred um, or a reputation that you could jump genres and, you know, like, like Kubrick, you know, or, uh, you know, those, or, or Spielberg or these people, like for a while, Spielberg was not allowed to do anything other than um, fantasy action uh, adventure films. Uh, then he, he f- said, no, I'm going to do Color Purple. And then I'm going to yeah. do Empire of the Sun. I don't care. And uh, to the point where he then did Schindler's List and Jurassic Park in the same year, and he was good. Um, but yeah. yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, no. So that's right. So that we're looking at like this thing, understanding conversion rate, understanding the way to get in front of an audience. Another case in point, we can use another industry, something like music, uh, something more relevant of today, Tori Kelly, this, this, this singer, songwriter. She auditioned for uh, American Idol, was told by uh, Simon Cowell that she has like one of the most annoying voices, this this pretty girl from um, San Diego, you know, but she, she was, you know, changed by that. That was her plan. She got punched in the face. She got Mike Ty, you know, that the world changed for her. But she started doing cover songs on YouTube. Yeah. So she, she worked on her craft, learned how to play the guitar better. So she... You know, talk about jumping in front of the uh, the the parade, mm-hmm. which is simply like, what is the most relevant popular song going on right now? So a YouTube artist, well, I'll do a cover of it. So they get a following because then, you know, the if somebody sees like well, whatever the popular song is now, oh, there's somebody did a cover of it. And you really like that person. And she gets this following. And then she was able to say, I'm going to be releasing my next album or my, my own album. And then people realize her genius. She has like the most, one of the most amazing voices in the industry. And the same thing happened if you're talking about actors, um, uh, somebody or a personality, like an you know, on screen personality, Michelle Fan, for she did makeup tutorials on YouTube. Hey girls, like here's how you mm-hmm. do this. Like, mm-hmm. Those are super, super popular. We're talking about conversion rate. Well, she did um, like how to do like makeup for like a Lady Gaga video mm-hmm. because that's where the parade was. She piggybacked, jumped in front of that audience. Her YouTube subscribers jumped up to whatever, a couple million, right? Conversion rate, one to two percent converts into really dedicated fans. So even though she had a YouTube following of a couple million, I think it was, I think the conversion rate got down to like, um, she was offering exclusive, like, hey, if you want to get pre-made, like, makeup packages sent to your house, join my club, you know, and it's like $10 a month. So she has this free YouTube channel. She's got a mm-hmm. subscriber base of whatever, a couple mm-hmm. million. The mm-hmm. conversion rate, one, two percent. She was looking at like 75,000 people that signed up. Now do the math there. 75,000 times $10 a month. Let me, I'll do that real quick. So 75,000. Oh no, that's $750,000. $750,000 a month. Yeah. Seven. She talks yeah. about, talk about, she built her audience. Yeah. And guess what? Major makeup companies came calling. She signed a billion dollar deal. She has her own makeup line. Of course she does. What I'm getting at. Yeah. What we're getting at is like, these are the metrics or how to do it. So Alex is running film, indie film hustle and all the other offshoots bullet screen bulletproof screenplay and film entrepreneur like but you you, you massacred them yeah but yes sir (laughs) thank you so you know it's uh what what we're saying is these are things that you can try to follow it's it's not it's easy to understand 
is when it's you get to your execute. head wrapped around it, it is so hard to execute. But it's simple. Um, but it's simple though. It's easy. That's the thing. It, it it's easy to to grasp, but difficult to do. It's like playing the guitar sounds easy, looks easy, but to actually do it is extreme. To make a good to bake a good bread. It's simple ingredients. It's like, you know, because I just baked the bread because we're in quarantine. Yeah. But, um, but you know, we have, it's like five or six ingredients. But, and everyone has the same five or six ingredients. But what do you do to execute, to do it very, very well? Writing, same thing. All, all, all great art forms. It's simple, but to execute it at a very high level is very, very complex. You know, executing on, you know, so I make my show. And so, like, I'm not doing the youtube youtuber paradigm like it's not just a vlog show you know it's right. it's people look at yeah, it no, oh, it's kind of like a vlog show but the thing is like i'm not i'm not trying to bet on the youtube system because youtube if you want to be a youtuber That's they want world. you to be producing every day yeah. in order to feed the machine in order to keep your subscriber um count high to keep the notification to be part of their algorithm, algorithm that, yeah, yeah, that yeah. you get to seen all the time and you see a lot of YouTubers burn out after oh, a couple of years. Oh, Our yeah. boy, Casey Neistat, you know, he's the poster child who's done it. He's the first one, if you're a fan of his stuff on YouTube, remember, he had a deal with HBO. He was making shows for HBO. He will be the first one to tell you, he's like, this is the next evolution. To be able to be a YouTuber, like a filmmaker on his own terms, he feels like this is way better than working for like a company, like making content for a company like he did before. And, but even him, he's gotten to a point where he's, he's had to take a break cause he, you know, burnouts there. I know, but he was, he was going crazy, dude. He was making oh so much con I mean, he was doing a content. daily vlog and these, they were edited. I mean, he's taking two, three hours a day to edit. Like, he's a beast. He's a, Beast makes Beast. me look. I know. I know you guys. A lot of you guys talk about how I make content. Oh my god, it's nothing. I mean, this nothing. man, nothing. Casey Neistat. Oh my god, definition of hustles. But 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 so, he's he's worth. I mean, he sold his his app, um, his like YouTube app or something to CNN for sixty million. Like he's, you know what I mean? Like he's all right. I'm not crying for Casey, but he busted his ass for for a decade doing mm -hmm. this. And then again, he's finding other ways to leverage and license and exploit what he's created to other venues. Correct. I think for people, we we started this 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 episode talking about. I was mentioning like the biggest takeaway I have was that our films or like all the money's in the action figures from George Lucas. Like yeah. our films are nothing more than advertisement for something more expensive. If you look at the world of music, I think no better example is Beats by Dre. Here's <laughs> Dr. Dre. <laughs> Yeah, you know, world-renowned rap artist, musician, but it really wasn't until some other champion, entrepreneur, used his likeness, his his leveraged, backing, leveraged, leveraged, leveraged his yeah. world to create these like headphones and sell it for a billion dollars to Apple. And if you want to know, like the poster child for the the ultimate, that might be it. Oh, well, I mean, like, Jessica, Jessica Alba is not too far behind. Oh yeah, that is way on the radar. Yeah, Jeez. like for everyone not knowing, Jessica Alba, who was you know the the most beautiful and still is, uh, but we you know she was a heart uh, you know a, a sex symbol uh, in the early two thousands to mid two thousands. Um, she started a, a company called the Honest Company because after she had her first child, she wanted uh, she couldn't find any really clean 
baby products. So he's like, hey, there's a, there's, a, there's a hole in the market here. So she created the Honest Company, which I'm sure you've probably seen at Target or Walmart and stuff like that. The company's worth over a billion dollars, and she owns mm-hmm. 35% of it. And she's basically the poster child for it. So she's like, she's the, she's the model. She's the one up front, but she's got business partners behind her. But she was able to leverage her celebrity to get her into a business that now makes her so much money that she just acts when she wants to act and she produces and she directs and she does her own TV shows. She does whatever she wants, whenever she wants. Why? Because she has built an infrastructure, she's built a machine that is now generating cash flow for her, revenue streams for her. So she has freedom. She has absolute freedom to do whatever she wants, whenever she, wherever she wants. And she could give away money. She can do philanthropic Mm -hmm. things. She can start charities, which she has. She's helping people. Why? Because she built up a business. And it's not something that she's even doing 100% herself. She's got business partners. She's got other people doing a lot of the heavy lifting, the things that she was not good at, but she brought something to the table that they couldn't have done without because she got the attention. She was on the Today Show. She was on these big shows because she's Jessica Alba, and she was able to leverage her celebrity. And same thing, look, the 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 the, uh, the, the entrepreneurs behind Beats by Dre um, would have tried to come out with headphones. It wouldn't have worked. They need Dre because Dre is the ultimate DJ and has the street cred that everybody said, wait a minute, and then he leveraged all of his artists and all of his labels, so every music video had beats. I, I saw the whole documentary about Beats by Dre. Every, mm-hmm. every every single music video he produced, all the artists were wearing Beats by Dre. Every single time. So instead of becoming a sponsor, becoming a, a spokesman, like you said earlier, becoming a spokesman mm-hmm. for somebody else's headphones, hey, I'm going to make my own headphones. Puffy did this, or P. Diddy, or whatever he calls himself. He did this with vodka. So did... um. Uh, whatchamacallit, Ryan, uh, Ryan Reynolds just did it with a gin, a gin company. Um, I know, or tequila, is it tequila, tequila company? And then George, George Clooney did it. George Clooney has made more money outside the film industry because of who Mm -hmm. he is. And honestly, it's because he made three movies, Ocean's 11, 11, 12, and 13. Those three movies he has leveraged into multi-billion dollar real estate deals in Las Vegas and has his own uh, tequila company, which I think he's about to sell or has sold for $100, $200 million or something like that. Insane. But these are all artists who leveraged what they had to build something else. And now they could do whatever they want. And they were fine before. They were multimillionaires before, don't get me wrong. But now they've taken it to a whole other place where now they can be philanthropic, build other, create other opportunities for other filmmakers, for other companies, for other people that they wouldn't have been able to do before. The more money you have in the the more money in the right hands equals more impact for people around the world. Yeah. And you know, we talked about before. That quote, Mike Tyson, everybody's got a plan to get punched in the face. Well, another boxer, George Foreman, <laughs> the Foreman girl. I mean, it's not like he made all this money boxing. He made it because the he, His family is set up for generations upon generations if they're smart with their money. He's a multi-billionaire off of putting his name on George Foreman. By the way, just so you know, George Foreman wasn't their first choice. Um, Hulk Hogan passed on that. <laughs> Hulk Hogan passed on that and believe me there's not a day that goes by that he's not pissed off about it <laughs> tell you like that kind of stuff so if we rein it back in on a smaller scale like I was mentioning like I I've now been applying just for a few months um, yeah. the last few years 
you know, I changed professions to some extent because I needed to learn how to become a really good real estate agent. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't need to learn my craft and to, to serve clients the best before I really started putting, um, effort into the show. So I was dabbling with my show a little bit, uh, sporadically once a month, once every other month. But now at the beginning of the year, I was like, I'm going to commit to once a week. Mm -hmm. And then I got, because I'm not a YouTuber, I'm, I'm able to create my show. And again, I'm, I'm writing it. I'm the spokesperson. I'm having yeah, yeah, yeah. a blast doing it, but I get to focus on a more very micro specific local level. And niche. I realized the the niche, the niche is much more active on, uh, Facebook, mm -hmm. you know, um, you're, and it's a niche, by the way, it's a niche you can control. It's a niche, not a control, but it's a niche that you can access. It's not like all yes. real estate for all of Oregon. No, no, no. It's right. This specific area, the specific kind of customer, this is who this, this content is created. You're using the, the film entrepreneur method without question. Yes. So, but, so I don't have to be succumb to the, the, the algorithm of YouTube. I don't have to be a YouTuber. Correct. You know, I don't have to have this large, like million, million followers to do a conversion 1%. I have Correct. to be very micro, like hyper local specific. And so then it wasn't until I had a breakthrough on finding like a hot button that meant something in the community. And there's so many things because if you just sit and you listen and you read what these community posts are talking about, there's Nextdoor app as well. All of a sudden, I think I, I was able to create very specific content with the right headlines that just suddenly, all of a sudden my videos took off. And what's the convert? And the conversion rate I'm assuming is more than one or two percent. Yes, it's going to be a lot higher. Correct. And I'll tell you. So it's been three months now, and that has led to, you know, I have been a part of three different local governments because of the, the, uh, the videos I'm making. Mm -hmm. And that's got me more exposure in, in terms of, and, and it's, it's my version of the modern day version of um, the bus stop billboard for real estate yeah, agents. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So now, but I also purposely try to create the videos so that they are evergreen. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't matter when you find them, they mm -hmm. will have some relevancy. And I know it's working because some of my videos have been banned from like places like Nextdoor app because other real estate agents, I think, reported it as promotional. And other real estate agents have like uh, their own Facebook groups that they started and they won't put any of my content on. And so it's like, nice. it's really fantastic. Like, oh, great. Now it's working because if like the people probably see it as a threat and it's growing and, and things like that. So I wanted to share that with the audience is saying, here we are talking about how you and I are applying these things in our daily lives. And mm -hmm. it's a struggle. It's at work every day. It's not like we're, we're pimping it. You know, it's like we are, every, it's every, still it's, work. It's a struggle every day. Um, but the the big difference is that I love doing what I do every day, and yeah, it's enjoyable, and I, I want to do it. I just want to do it every day. It, it's so addictive um, to help people in my side, and I know you too. Too, you're helping people get houses, um, but you're also able to express yourself as an artist. These are the times where the greatest opportunities are presented. If you're smart. This could be the time where that great shift that you need to make in your life happens. Because a lot of times you don't make this shift, you don't you don't take that jump until you're either forced to or you're like remember that we've talked about this before in other shows like that place where you're like eh, it's not too bad but it's not too good. I'm like in that little midway like eh, 
<laughs> I'll just deal. That kind of world. You only move when you come become completely uncomfortable. So you're going to go to the gym once you find out that you just had a heart attack or um, yeah. or your blood or your blood work came back and like if you don't change something you're going to die. That's when the pain becomes so so powerful that it moves you, it launches you into the direction you have to go. We are that, where we're in right now is that pain for a lot of people. And instead of being angry or depressed about it, look at it like, okay, this is the world we live in. This is my reality. How can I use this pain and this place to make that shift? Should I start writing that book I've been wanting to write? Should I start, you know, doing that business I wanted to create online? Should I start doing, you know, creating a YouTube channel? Should I start doing this or writing that script? Whatever that thing is, the thing that you've been putting off, this is the time to maybe start down that road. And it could turn into the road, the business where you go. Who knows? In six months, you might just be the virtual tour guy in Oregon, uh, Scott. <laughs> and, and, yeah. and, that, and that becomes you've cornered that market because you were the guy there when it all happened. It happens all the time in, in these kind of crises. So um, maybe this is that time for you. So look inside of yourself, uh, everyone listening, and see what can I do um, differently? How can I think differently? How can I build something from this pace? Because I would have I would have never in a million years done it if I wouldn't have been forced to the situation that we're all in right now. That's kind of what – that was the message I wanted to put out there before we go. No, it's it's great. And we'll wrap this up here shortly. You're right. It's the stressors that are needed have like a crisis. It really defines your character and like, you know, moving forward. And all I can say again, whatever path any of us take, it's hard. Every day is going to be hard, but Mm -hmm. you, it's what's you and I are talking about. It's the, the process and dealing with that, um, challenge. If that's, what's enjoyable, that's the only thing that you can count on mm-hmm. one of the things i took away when i made the movie the cube was exploring you know, my mom's from thailand my dad's from new york you know there was you know growing up with necessarily like two ideologies but you know the buddhist uh teachings was like this one quote that was really simple it's like really the whole point of life is to share share your knowledge with others when you acquire it you share it that's it so with that said it's like the daily being Zen about it, be in the moment, doing the work itself is the is the is the win. Whatever happens at the end, just kind of like you just hope that you're prepared enough for it that mm-hmm. when the opportunity arises, you can take advantage of it. But before we wrap up here, I do want to share this one bit of information that I thought was really pivotal in my experience running Film Trooper that mm-hmm. gave me for the perspective of going down this path of the film entrepreneur or the film trooper or whatever it is like you, you and I have, just, have come across and talked mm-hmm. about over years is when people we're going to go to how sort of like the movie, how movies make money or where money comes from for these mm-hmm. movies and where we all fit into this. Mm-hmm. We, you and I have shared this before, but I got this from uh, Scott Kirkpatrick you know, who works in the distribution world, um, a little bit, but he wrote a book, but he was really breaking down. Like if you want to know how producers make money or movies make money, this is just like a a case scenario. We talked about this before, which was this distribution company 
or a production company has a relationship with these international buyers. Again, all this stuff is going to change, but I'm just trying to say that these are sort of the principles of like how people like Harvey Weinstein made all his money, you know, Mm -hmm. before he went to jail and, you know, where all that kind of stuff happens. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. so these, you, you and I could start a production company or distribution company and say, you know what, and build these relationships with some international buyers like these, uh, say we have a relationship with some Japanese film buyers, Mm -hmm. like they will buy content if it's of a certain ilk. Mm -hmm. And so we have this relationship and we're about, we're good. We, over the years, we've been going to film markets, all the international Mm -hmm. film markets, all the local film markets is building up our, uh, relationship with them. And, uh, okay. And then this is it. So, so from there, um, we just make a poster of mm-hmm. a big giant monster destroying a city, <laughs> maybe a helicopter over its <laughs> right, head. Right, right, and right. We just show this to our Japanese pe- friends that we know that this is the type of content they buy. Mm-hmm. We show this to them and they, yeah, this is great. And they say, this is great. If you can deliver this film by this date, you know, let's make an, a, a, a deal. And so say it's 2 million, we'll give you $2 million for this movie. So we shake hands, we write up all the legal documents saying if we deliver this movie based on this poster we created, then they'll give us $2 million. Well, let's back up. This is how the world works in the film business. There is no script. There is no movie. Mm -hmm. It was just a poster and a relationship. And then this sort of promissory note that we got from this company saying we will deliver $2 million. They're reputable. Mm -hmm. They're going to give us $2 million. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We go – you and I will go to a bank. That's does this type of loans. Mm-hmm. Show them that we're reputable, that they are reputable, meaning that the, we've done we done this have before. A deal with a reputable company. Yeah. yeah, we've done this before. So they say, okay, we'll give you the loan for two million dollars. So you're thinking like, hey, we're going to make a film for two million dollars that's based off this monster poster. That's not how it works. You and I, we're going to pocket one and a half million dollars. We're only going to make the film for five hundred thousand. So we hire the director, the writer, the producer, and all the f- crew. Remember, when you're working in the world of filmmaking, your your salary is based off what the budget of the film is. They're like, hey, the budget's only five hundred thousand, so your 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 salary can only be paid this per week, right? Mm-hmm. So the film is made for five hundred thousand dollars. We deliver that to Japan. They said, you made it. That's great. It could be schlocky. It could be terrible yeah. as long as it delivered on the poster. And they're happy that was promised to them. They gave us $2 million. We take it to the bank. We pay back that loan. You and I just pocket a million and a half dollars. We didn't have to make the film. We just made the deal. Mm-hmm. So this is how Harvey Weinstein and all those guys make their money. They're just making deal. Made, excuse me, past tense, is, made their money. He's not making movies anymore. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm saying of his kind. That sure, sure, sure. Producers. So if you ever wonder where you fit into the whole scheme of things in the money-making machine, goes, if you are working on a film or a television project and there's a budget set for X amount, just know that the producers and other people are making way more because they made the deal. Mm-hmm. You know, And then you're, you're just stuck making what you're making. You're going to make your day rate or whatever it is, and then you move on. And so you putting your head wrapped around that, it's like being a film trooper, film trooper moving forward in this world – it's like, do you want to be part of that world or just be aware that that's how it works? And then how do you gain more creative control and self-empowerment 
to weather the storm so you're not, um, you know, basically part of that machine that, that you don't have a lot of say in sometimes. Uh, if I if I may bring it back to the beginning, let's to, to bookend it. You have the three. Yes. You have the three paths. You can be the employee. You could be the production company or independent contractor or small business owner, or you could build a business, an asset that generates revenue for you um, while you sleep. And all three are very respectful paths, but you have to choose the path that you want to go down. Because there's people who just want to be an employee. There's people who just want to own a production company. And then there's other people who want to build a business that generates revenue for them to give them the freedom to do whatever they want creatively, artistically, in life in general. And that is the question you need to ask yourself. Which path do you want to walk? There's no right or wrong answer. I am obviously lean in one direction. Uh, Scott and I both lean in kind of one direction. Um, but if you, you know, like I said, some of the greatest filmmakers of all time walk the first path. You know, uh, Hitchcock was, you know, I think Hitchcock was an employee pretty much his entire life because um, he came from the old, old Hollywood system uh, where he was just a hired hand. Um, and then later on, I don't know if he ever had a production. I think he had a production company at one point. Yeah, when he opened up the TV show, he started doing, when he started doing TV, he did it through a production, his own production company, but so on and so forth. But some of the greatest uh, filmmakers of all time went down that path. You just have to ask yourself the question, where do you want to be and how you want to be, um, how you want to walk this path, which is a very, you know, you chose this this filmmaking world and it's, it's not an easy world and it's getting more difficult and more confusing every single day that goes by. Um, and before we finish up, Scott, I want to personally say thank you um, for doing all the work that you've done with Film Trooper over the years. Um, he, you know, Film Trooper was around before I ever walked on, on, onto the scene. Um, I still remember the day that you reached out to me after you saw me show up with guns a blaring <laughs> and you were like, who are you? Where did you come from? Like, what's going on? And, um, uh, that story I always tell all the time, like, you know, this guy from Trooper, yeah, this is what Scott did when I first came on the scene. Um, and, and we became fast friends ever since then. Yeah. But I really do want to thank you um, for all the stuff that you've done for the community uh, in the way that you've done it, in the flavor that you have done it. Um, <laughs> because it's a very, look, I can't ever be Scott McMahon. Um, that flavor, <laughs> that non threatening ethnic, I can't be that. <laughs> Um, but, uh, but what you've done is helped a lot of filmmakers, uh, along the, along the way. Uh, and I know this is the last episode of the show for you of, of film entrepreneur. I'm mean, excuse me, of, um, film trooper, excuse me. Um, to, you see Florida and slip. No, uh, you know, um, I'm so used to saying film entrepreneur. I don't say film trooper that often, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. but this is the last episode of film trooper, man. And I'm so blessed and humbled that, uh, I would be the last guest. This has been an epic conversation. This is so packed with information uh, and value bombs that both you and I uh, were able to drop in there. But I, I want to thank you again for having me on the show. I've been on the show three times, I think yeah, four, three, five. four times, four or five times. I'm one of the, I'm one of the, few, I've, yeah. I've been on the, on the show a few times and uh, I truly, truly, truly appreciate everything you've done for me, for my audience, my tribe, but more importantly, what you've done for the, um, for the film trooper tribe and for, uh, filmmakers who ever had the pleasure of listening to one of your podcasts or uh, consuming some of your content. So from the bottom of my heart, my friend, thank you so much for all the work that you did and you will be missed, but I hope this is a good send off. Definitely. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for taking this time. And again, for everybody listening, uh, 
I really do hope you got a lot of nuggets out of this to just to think, to be like, whoa, where do I fit into this world and how do we move forward? But, um, you know, we'll still be around. Hopefully I'll, I'll pop on your film entrepreneur. Yes. Anytime. Up, you know? Anytime. Anytime, Scott, whatever you want to come on and talk about what you're doing in the film, like your film entrepreneur method with the real estate. I'm all about it. You let me know when you want to come on. Right. It doesn't mean that I won't necessarily make another narrative or documentary or stuff like that. Even then. And yeah, there's a, it just means that I, I'm applying something to uh, a new, my base, my foundation. And yes. the foundation is solid. Nothing stops you from creating all these other things. So absolutely, man. Absolutely. I, I, again, thank you so much for everything you've done, brother. And, and if anybody thank wants, you. and, and you're still going to keep your website up running, right? Yeah. Yeah. It exists. It always yeah. exists. And yeah. the podcast will still be on archive for yep. people to listen to. Yep. On our, yep. All right. So, all right, my friend, we'll thank talk you. to you soon. I want to thank Scott for not just being on the show and also having me on as his last and final guest on his podcast, but I truly want to thank Scott for all the hard work and dedication he's given the indie film community in all that time that he's been running Film Trooper. He truly wanted to help filmmakers as much as humanly possible, and if you haven't checked out his book, Uh, surviving the Hollywood implosion, I would definitely suggest you check it out. And if you want to visit Film Trooper, which is going to stay active as an archive, you can listen to all of his podcasts, his articles. He's got a ton, a ton of information uh, and great knowledge on that website. So please head over to the show notes at IndieFilmHustle.com forward slash 383. And I'll have links to everything there. And if you haven't already have an Audible account, you can download his book for free by signing up through Audible, and the link is in the show notes as well. Now, I know a lot of you out there are in quarantine, listening to this podcast, stuck at home, dealing with the uncertainty that is happening right now in this bizarro world that we're living in right now. But I can promise you one thing, that this will pass. And this time that you have locked up in, in quarantine by yourself or with your family or close, close ones, you need to prepare yourselves as much as possible for whatever comes our way in this business. You should be taking this time to educate yourself. You should be taking this time to read books, to take online courses, to watch YouTube videos, to write, to read, all of it. Educate yourself as much as possible Make those contacts. Have Zoom conversations or Skype calls with other filmmakers. Create groups. Talk about what you guys want to do, how to do it. Start thinking outside the box. But prepare yourself because when this is over, I want you all to be locked and loaded, ready for action. The business will change and it will not be what we were once was, but it will be a new version of normal, and I want you guys to be prepared for it. I promise you, this will pass. I wish you and your family nothing but safety and success moving forward. Thanks again for listening, guys. As always, keep that hustle going, keep that dream alive, stay home, and I'll talk to you soon. 
Thanks for listening to the Indie Film Hustle podcast at IndieFilmHustle.com. That's I-N-D-I-E-F-I-L-M-H-U-S-T-L-E.com. Your Total Wine & More store is ready to serve you with our always low prices on an incredible 8,000 wines and 2,500 beers. Want it today? Try our same-day delivery or contactless curbside pickup at TotalWine.com. Whether you're grabbing your favorite beer or pouring a glass to enjoy an evening on the deck, Total Wine & More has you covered. Visit any of our 12 stores in Northern Virginia. Your Total Wine & More store is ready to serve you with our always low prices on an incredible 8,000 wines and 2,500 beers. Want it today? Try our same-day delivery or contactless curbside pickup at TotalWine.com. Whether you're grabbing your favorite beer or pouring a glass to enjoy an evening on the deck, Total Wine & More has you covered. Visit any of our 12 stores in Northern Virginia.